Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while Bo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my host, Scott Daly. He has many labels, but in every incarnation, or with any label worn, he's a man who cannot be swayed from his path of hating anime. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of moose, the brutal death of long-loved characters and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week we are continuing Arc 12 Heavens with Chapter 12.4 and, Matt, Chapter 12.all. Victoria's hatred of eggs comes back with a vengeance, and then it's shard time, baby. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? I have a very difficult time summarizing my feelings on these two chapters, honestly. Um, the first one, a Victoria chapter, um, was great in any, any number of ways, uh, very satisfying. Um, and then of course we get the shard point of view chapter, which, uh, I was basically processing ever since I read <laughs> it and, and I still feel like I'm processing it is the thing. Yeah. Like I, I'm looking forward to this discussion because normally I walk into the discussion, we've written the script, I feel like I have my thoughts in order. On this one, I'm like, yeah, I really hope that you have some smart things to say for me to bounce off of. Because <laughs> it, it, well, it's, it's not that I don't have thoughts. It's just like, wow, it's just, it's all still bouncing around in there. Yeah. Like, like 10 bouncy balls charged with explosive energy. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a type of chapter that I think, like, I'm not going to sit here and call it my favorite chapter in this book. Um, I think there are some things about it that I don't, I don't like, um, kind of related to the, the, just the whole structure of it. Like I, we were talking last week or the week before about how some of these interludes just like structurally are these kind of works of art where they just kind of rhyme and play off each other in wonderful ways. This doesn't have that, um, for, I think obvious reasons, but the content of 12 all is like the type of stuff where every line like means a new thing or could mean a new thing about the themes of this book, about what this book is exploring, about what it's doing, about what it's going to say going forward. And I'm not confident in like any of the stuff that I'm about to talk about, but it, it all has is, is so rich and deep with meaning for me that I just want to put it out there in the world as just like things I'm thinking about that the book might be swinging back to. And then we can see as we go. That's like, that's like my whole strategy with, with mm -hmm. a chapter like this, because it's just yeah. so it's just, there's so much. Reminds me of the scion interlude. Um, but I think it's actually right. much denser, like it's shorter than the scion interlude, but it's also yeah. much denser in that. Like, like you said, every line is like a, even if it's just word choice, it's, it's a little bit of a wrinkle on what we thought we knew about the shards and right. the nature of this world. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of stuff like I don't I don't want to say hidden because that means like it's it's not necessarily designed that way, but just like some subtle stuff that I think means a great deal when you think about mm -hmm. it. Well, yeah, I mean, there were things that I was like like conclusions that I was still coming to today as we were 
talking about this. Yeah. And, you know, for, for the for the permanent record that we're recording this like two days later than usual due to illness. So, right. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually like I, I'm glad you're feeling better. But I was also kind of glad that we were forced to delay because it allowed me to sit with this. I've read this chapter 10 times uh-huh. um, and it really allowed me to sit with this and think about it and ponder, you know, it, it from a, a high level. I mean, we're going to we're going to talk through some of the low level stuff, but just like a high level thematic level of what all this stuff means um, is something I'm really interested in. So, yeah, but we're not going to give short shrift to 12.4 at all. Um, no, we, we can't. We can't. Yeah. So before we get into that, though, uh, some quick announcements. First up, March's Madness is live. Uh, if you head on over right right this minute to doofmedia.com slash March Madness, you will find all the voting for round one of our big character on character tournament. Um, that The round one voting will be open until this Sunday at midnight central time. So you have until the end of the week. Uh, to to put in your votes for round one um, at the end of this episode, Matt and I are going to go through some of the matchups and talk about some of the things we pick. Um, but just wanted to get that off at the top. Go go vote in this right now. The the response to this has been exactly what I wanted it to be. So I'm very happy that this is working and people are having fun with this. Um, if you haven't voted yet, go do it. Go do it. Go do it. Yeah, we'll talk more about that at the end. Um, and then um, just yet again, wanted to remind everyone to go check out Deep Impact on the Doof Network. Um, I'm really enjoying this show. Uh, I, I finished Pact relatively recently, and I just love the treatment that they're giving it. Um, it's so fun to go along with with these guys as they're, you know, one of them experiencing it for the first time and getting to vicariously enjoy that. And um, and 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 of course, they're bringing my attention to just tons of things that I didn't notice the first time because, like everyone. I'm pretty sure I just blew through it so fast that I, I lost a lot of details. So yeah, yeah, uh, you d- you did that, Matt. You definitely, definitely did that. I always do that. Yeah. So go check out Deep Impact. And with that, let's get on into twelve point four. So at the end of the last chapter, uh, the battlefield had shifted with Moose and Prancer agreeing to support the heroes, or at least Prancer agreeing not to, you know, do anything. <laughs> Right. Uh, Moose then carries the two harbingers on his shoulders. Yeah, I really appreciate how this chapter opens up. Like it's it's you you mentioned that the battlefield has shifted, and the chapter almost understands that in this shift we have to reestablish what the new status quo is, and it does that by like this opening line: Moose, Prancer, Sveta, Swansong, and I were in a loose line against Paris's group to demonstrate Moose and Prancer are now on this side this side of the line, but. Just because we've won over these two people doesn't mean we're like home free now. There's still people standing on the other side of us. There's still enemies we have to get through or talk our way around uh, to get to our goal. And um, and I think that's that's in essence like the main form of tension that carries us through this entire chapter is this idea that, yes, we've won over some people, but we we still have people in our way. We're still outnumbered for most of this chapter. And and are our characters going to be able to get through this in a way that uh, is quick and doesn't result in any more fighting or injury. Right. This is a really complicated kind of scenario, too, because at this point, they're actually trying to backtrack to get back to their other team members who have, like, fallen in, in the range of the of the mines. Right. So they're almost just, they're not even trying to move forward. They're trying to move back and, and just in such a way that the villains don't feel confident in attacking them. And that's, yeah. that's a cool little wrinkle there. Yeah. And the whole the whole like the, the, the story establishes how unshaky 
and tenuous this whole uh, ceasefire is like it does it through imagery like Victoria points out that their footing is slippery and she's speaking in the literal because uh, there's ice and and dirt and, and wetness everywhere now because of rain and just like they're on shaky ground. Our footing mm. is slippery. We're not. And then she takes that, of course, because she's Victoria, she takes that literal and later in the chapter makes it a metaphor. <laughs> and yeah. that's just kind of what Victoria does. Um, she likes to state her own metaphors in her head, which I find delightful because I kind of do that too. Um, but I just love that, that, that like it's stated, it's stated as literal, but it is very clear a metaphor for the, the tenuous situation that the, the heroes find themselves in right now. Yeah. That has become a very classic way of Victoria thinking. Yeah. Um, she does my job. Like which, Victoria. which is going to resonate in a very interesting <laughs> way in the next chapter. I think you're right. So Swan Song uh, again, describes the harbingers as brothers as damsel did before. Uh, but this time she goes a bridge further and she describes herself as part of a family with all the other ex-Slaughterhouse-Nine, uh, which is quite a thing. Yeah. Um, I, I love I love this. I, I'd like. It, part of this is absolutely Swan Song just like flexing her scary supervillain muscles a bit against the bad dudes to kind of like intimidate them. But. I agree. It is interesting to see that that line about family, that fam- familial collect connection drawn again. And I think we have to say that Swansong has never referred to them as her brothers before. That was a damsel the first mm-hmm. time. Um, but this is Swansong this time. And I think like when you heard it, when you heard it uh, from damsel, I think part of my reasoning was, OK, damsel is the one that still has her claws. She chose to, to go down that path. Like she chose to remain down that path. So maybe she's the one of the two that still view her time in the slaughterhouse nine as, as more positive than the other. So then it, maybe it makes a little sense why she would be m- much more willing to call that group a family. Right. Mm-hmm. But Sansong re- rejected her clause. And I think the rejection of the clause to me is partially symbolic of her as rejection of that time re- rejection of the, the choices that made, a former version of her, but in essence, her to to go down that path and end up in that place. So that kind of led me to think about this as and and how how she when she talked talking about the family, what she's referring to there, like what could be under the surface when she's talking about family. And that that got me thinking is maybe I'm looking at the wrong way is they're not a family of Slaughterhouse Nine people. They're a family of clones that were victimized by the Slaughterhouse Nine, right? Because they were they were created they out of their choice. They were created and put into the situation. These clones um, are victims of bone saw to a certain extent. Yeah. Kind of in the same way um, that the, that the heartbroken are, they're not like proud um, of being the victims of heartbreaker. Um, but yeah, but they still have a coherent identity around that. Yeah. And, and she's playing it up, talking about how violent they are, the bloody days. There's all this very, like very severe imagery there. Mm-hmm. And that is that is very much vintage swan song. Like that's that's what she does. But what I, I just I just get this feeling that what links her to the number boys in the situation is not we used to be in the slaughterhouse nine together, but rather we were the cruel experiments of a ter- terrible person. And that has bound us together in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is true with her character, too, because she looks at damsel in that same way. She looks at damsel as and it, it doesn't matter to her that damsel has chosen chosen a different way. She's frustrated with her in that. But it doesn't matter as much like she's still family. Mm. And I think that's why it doesn't matter as much to her that the number boys have clearly 
you know, decided to keep doing the same things that that Number Man used to do, that Harbinger used to do back in the day, um, they, she still feels a, a familial connection to them in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my, I, I kind of went to a different um, arena here, and, and this is a bit kind of convoluted perhaps, but like on the hero side, you've got Victoria and, and her parents here, and, and I think that Swan Song kind of looks up to Victoria in a way that she can't possibly ever acknowledge. Um, and, and so maybe in a way she's trying to be like, well, and I have my family here too. Oh, so, I like that. I like so, that a lot. And, 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 and maybe I'm reaching too far in, in the, in the saying it's for that exact reason, but like, it's interesting to think that the heroes on the hero side, we have Victoria and her parents, Swan Song and her, her sister and her two brothers. And it, it kind of is a, a, a you get a sense of like, you, you're not going to be able to, to win against like these families you know right that, yeah that, and um and i mean we've been talking about the concept of family throughout this entire story yeah. um and, and we're starting to really lean into this idea of um community of team of being together of being a group a cohesive unit that works together and i think i think the next chapter is going to really dive into that i think we were a lot of what i have to talk about about 12 all is this idea of the network mm-hmm. of humans versus the network of shards and how those things are playing off each other so i think that this is part of it that 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 she still wants to focus on these familial bonds is definitely saying something about her mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yeah swan song continues on this monologue of trying to psych out the opposition though Victoria also attributes her chattiness to frustration and pain. I love this moment when Harbinger says he wouldn't be able to beat all the opponents. <laughs> um, when, when Swan Song like is obviously trying to engage him in the banter, yep. but, but then he says if he had four rocks and, and a little bit, bit more power, he could. Um, and then I just like this bit where uh, she says, and Jack said you were one of the scariest of them. I am. We are which is why ideally I like four rocks I can throw, my power 85% and one nail or pen because beating them isn't enough now. Both sides of this equation need to be balanced out. Um, Harbinger scares the shit out of me. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful and a dear God, these people are scary kind of way. Um, what's what's he going to do with the, the pen, Matt? Yeah. <laughs> what's he going to do with the pen? Yeah. It's like it's like you're just like, that's that's what's wonderful about the section. And, and you know, we've talked about this before, so I don't really want to, you re go over this, but this book and Wildbow's ability to write banter between characters continues to be one of like my favorite parts about it. And this is a scene that is absolutely true in that, that, that the banter between Swan Song and, and the, one of the number boys here is just great. And this is, this is absolutely part of it. Just like this casual introduction of a nail or a pen. We don't explain mm-hmm. what, what that means, but, uh, but the yeah, I mean, like we're we're already hinting towards a fate worse than death, right? right. That it's not enough that we just kill him. Um, yeah, the equation needs to be balanced out. Is vague enough to be horrifying? Right, it's vague enough, and that's not, and that's just the the priming moment before it actually kind of gets enacted later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah. So Prancer uh, then primes Moose on the negotiating tactic that they're going to take with the villains they're going to encounter bringing up an old mechanic when they were road tripping. And this introduces um, my favorite element of this chapter. Um, I'm, we're going to spend a lot of time on this as we go through it, but this is definitely, we're bringing it up to establish it and we're going to explore it later. Yeah. 
So the team continues to make their way down the road, being trailed by Paris contender Vulturehawk and Thud, uh, with a marginally effective Etna trailing. Uh, but now uh, blocking their egress is Blue Stocking, Bitter Pill, Crested, and Birdbrain. This is the group that they let go recently. Mm-hmm. So the team is badly outnumbered. Hopefully they have recruited somebody with a higher social modifier than Victoria. It's not It's not me. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, and, and once again, we're reminded of the unsteady ground that they walk they walk on here. Um, they are outnumbered once again. Um, and and we get we get a reminder of just how tenuous this whole thing is, because Blue Stocking and Victoria's immediate interaction in this moment is aggressive right away. They're mm-hmm. they're confrontational. They're aggressive with each other. Um, they're blaming each other for things. And and Blue Stocking goes down this 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 line of thinking that is like, look, you're you're crossing the line mm-hmm. and and victoria's like no they crossed the line first like we're not going to be pleasant and then it's like no etna didn't do this and she goes well they were helping the people that did and then blue stocking says you played a part in this raising the stakes and um victoria says the, the, the stakes were always going to be raised and then she gets cut off by prancer but this is this is a really interesting line of thinking that got me got my mind kind of turning on this because First of all, I think I think blue stocking is in general like it's it's bullshit. Like, I don't think that's a, a fair, a fair excuse for why your behavior is OK for for allying yourself with terrible people. But it is it is a consequence, right? Like, I th- th- that's the interesting thing that we want to talk about here is that Victoria has put together this network of heroes and this network of heroes has proven to be very effective at stopping people stopping villains like even even just day-to-day run-of-the-mill villains and when you turn up the pressure on on the villains like that they get desperate and they turn to worse and worse people i mean this is literally the dark knight matt like this is like like they put up the pressure on the gangs in gotham and the gangs turned to someone like like the joker because they were desperate um and and then things get worse and that is not to say that this is Victoria's fault. That's where I think blue stocking takes it too far. It's not, you cannot say, Oh, because you were trying to stop crime, you made things worse. No, that's bullshit, but it is a consequence, right? Like Mm. this is, this is, this is the result of doing that thing is the villains start to, uh, return to people. They normally would not. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same thing that's happened with, you know, the drug laws in the United States that by criminalizing more and more things, it pushes everything underground into the, into the hands of the most violent, ruthless people. Right. And, and, and I mean, I, I think what Victoria is saying here is the stakes were always going to be raised. I think what she's talking about is that Cradle was always going to do this. He was always going to do this thing. But the rest of the group might not have been willing to put up with it as much if they weren't feeling the pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with you that like her, her saying the stakes were always going to be raised. Maybe it's not the most generous interpretation of those of those words, but you know, I'm tempted to be like, well, if if that was the case, then you know, you're like, aren't you complicit in it? Like, you either have to be, you either have to be against the escalation or not, mm-hmm. and 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 you have you have succumbed to the escalation, and maybe that was necessary. But let's not pretend that, like, if the stakes were always going to be raised, then then what was the point of of even trying? I, I don't know. I'm not being. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I don't I don't know if I want to go that far. Like, I I don't I don't think any 
any hero should not act to stop crime because that acting will naturally raise the stakes mm-hmm. and have people turn to worse and worse people. Like, I don't think that's fair. I don't think, um, I don't think blue stockings argument for why v- this is partially Victoria's fault holds any water. Um, obviously the person primarily responsible for all the terrible things is cradle. Yeah. And obviously the people that ally themselves with cradle are somewhat responsible. But if we're looking at a cause and effect chain of events, this I can see this leading to um, villains get desperate. Mm-hmm. They turn to people. They ally with people that um, they wouldn't normally right. do so. Well, that's that's why it's perfect that we move on into what Prancer is pitching because I mean, like like the scene is structured perfectly actually because yeah because Victoria is approaching this from the hero mentality where she just really she really has a hard time getting into the heads of of like why villains are the way they are. Um, but Prancer has always been approaching this from the villain side, but he has pretty much the same goal. Like, like Hollow Point was, was the Victoria Hero Organization for villains, right? Yeah. Um, and and what he does is he basically provides a pathway back to that status quo where, if somebody breaks the unspoken rules, then ev- then both sides get to align against them, and so basically he's saying. You know, he's talking about the justification behind what he was trying to do, saying, you know, for the sake of peace between villains and the very disparate motives of of these villains, there had to be a complete truce amongst the villains, all predicated on a strict no infighting policy, which meant they had to be willing to let some really awful stuff slide. Um, He even confesses that he was willing to let the navigators get eliminated because they were threatening his smuggling. Yeah. So he's like, he's no angel here. Um. But then he makes the case, mainly through insinuation, that when Cradle made deals with various groups in exchange for taking out their enemies, he used the power on those on those people to make them okay with whatever it was he was going to do. And Moose kind of backs him up, uh, mentioning that Cradle touched his arm for no reason. Um, and then this great, absolutely classic line of persuasion, I'm right, Prancer said, rationally, really, none of us would be okay with this, right? We're not monsters. And it's just Prancer is so great. I, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love this scene. I love yeah. everything about this. I love his, his opening pitch. Like the, the funny thing about this is he starts this pitch making the case that I think is the real one. Um, making the case that is why these people sanctioned what Cradle did or looked the other way or were willing to deal with him or willing to partner with him. Like he makes that case. And it's what we were talking about is it's this feeling of desperation that um, doesn't doesn't reveal like relieve them of any of the responsibility. But it is a very human thing to do. You're scared. You're desperate. And suddenly, OK, we got to we got to team up together. Bad guys. Um, we we've got to make a truce with this guy. We've got to do it or we're screwed. Um, and. Then and and then um, he swings it around to actually know this is 100 percent all Cradle's fault. It's not our fault that we allied with him at all. It's definitely not us. It was all him. It was his crazy tinkering stuff. This magic pinprick. He made us do things. And uh, that resolves us from from any and all responsibility in any of the stuff that happened. And I, I think it's important that in this moment we get right before we go down this path, we get Prancer's second beat reminding Moose about the negotiation tactic that they referenced before, which is just a way of framing this scene as 
when he's talking about that moment, this is what he's this is what he's framing it in. Right. Like like you you remind us of this right before we go into this this explanation. And then we know 100 percent that when they were talking about this, it's this strategy they're employing right now, right now. Yeah. And um, I I think this is this is wonderful. And we're going to get into how real it is in a bit. But I just love I love his maneuvering here. And and yeah, that line, that line that you wrote down, like none of us would be okay with this. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. He, he's giving them an out and, and, and simultaneously challenging them to reflect on, on what's going on and, and realize like, yeah, it would be better for us to take this out. Yeah. And, and he's going to talk. I think Moose is going to kind of explain that later. Right. Um, but it's just, it's brilliant because it, again, it, it, it basically, reestablishes the status quo because the cops and robbers thing again only works when there is a release valve where you can say okay what those guys did over there that that broke everyone's rules on all sides and and we don't need to support that anymore yeah yeah um as i like how uh, victoria refers to flashbang as dad when she calls out uh, <laughs> for him to knock out one of the traps yeah and to echo that i think blue stocking also says yeah and terry's dad do that and i yeah. just that was that was funny like to emphasize the usage of dad there we had uh blue stocking say it as well i thought that was a nice touch yeah and i like that like in victoria's internal monologue she's not thinking about being tired and in pain but like things like that and things like being extremely crabby with blue stocking Mm-hmm. Um, are probably, you know, manifestations of her being tired and, and injured from the from the shock mines and right. cold and so forth. Yeah. Uh, the other villains kind of corroborate the narrative that uh, that Prancer is supplying them, uh, which actually it makes me think that this is not a complete lie on Prancer's part. Like I walked away from the chapter thinking that it wasn't a complete lie. But what do you think? I think it's bullshit. I think I think it's. It's just it's just way too convenient of an out for everyone involved. Um, and I think it's like I think the book I, I don't I, the book doesn't want you to know f- for sure, but it, it takes this long route to get there. Right. Like we talked about, he starts with the real what, that in my mind is the real reason why they were so willing to partner with this person. Um, this idea that um, they were pressured, they were feared, um, they were frustrated and Victoria's organization scared them. The, 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 the heroes in general coming together and grouping up scared them into going with a person they wouldn't normally do, looking away when they normally wouldn't look away. That is a very convenient or that is a very true, realistic, human sounding response to that kind of uh, hero escalation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly we cut to this and it's this convenient power based out like everything about it, it just conveniently makes everyone just go, oh, yep, we can't. Nope. He broke the rules. We can't. Not only are we not held accountable, but now we have a perfect reason to uh, to never sides. work with him again. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's just like it's it's too convenient. It's like it's just too convenient. Um, and and it, with the part when you, you're talking about then that you're saying it's corroboration that other people are saying, yeah, that meat like he, now that I think of it, I did have a prick. Um, yeah, I did feel p- a little bit sick. Bitter on, pill. One day. Yeah. Bitter pill looked at it. And uh, yeah, he th- we just thought it was something else. I don't see that as corroboration. I see that as a writer's room, like <laughs> make building a story like they're 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 breaking a story and they're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, that too, that definitely, yeah. And then it will have that happen to this person too. And that'll make sure that, that yeah. it, it just, it's just, I just don't, I just don't, I don't buy it a hundred at all. Yeah. At all. I guess what I saw as supporting it was this idea that it would actually go close with what, with what Cradle's power supposedly is that, that, that his, his hidden emotion power is basically making people psychopaths. I mean, making them indifferent to harm, making them not care about doing horrible things. Sure. Um, which is basically what love law says has been done to her. So, and, and there's no reason that Prancer would know that. So, so like it, it fits, it fits with that. What seems to me too well to be a coincidence, but if he could do that, couldn't he do that to love lost as well? Um, probably, but I don't know if they were physically close that often, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing is that's almost the only data point in favor of the, it's not all bullshit hypothesis. Um, but it, but it was enough for me to be like, I don't know. I don't know. Could be. Yeah. Well, I mean, what we'll get to later is the honest truth is that it doesn't matter. Yeah. The, 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 the truth of the truth of this. And that's why the book doesn't tell us yeah. because the book is, is declaring it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. All that it matters is if everyone buys into it. And as long as everyone in this area right now buys into it, it it's irrelevant whether it's actually true or not. Yeah. True. And that's, that's, that's the game. That's all part of the game. That's all part of this whole thing that we construct. This whole system that we construct around this is it is only as powerful as everyone's ability to buy into it or not. Yeah. Yeah. True. Uh, but yeah, whether he's lying or not, again, he's given everyone a kind of like inverse plausible deniability. The villains can agree that they plausibly believed Cradle had violated the truce and they're no longer obligated to help him. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's I just <laughs> plausible deniability. Yeah, not our fault. Oh, it, yep. no, it, it's just such bullshit. It's such bullshit. <laughs> it's too neat. Like there's nothing this neat in this book, right? Like not an actual like real scenario. I just I just there's no way. Well, and there's that's, no way. And that's why he leaves it ambiguous. I think right. because I, I think it is actually better that it is ambiguous. Like that it could be either way. Actually, you're entitled to your opinion, Scott. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, so I find Paris's mentality here utterly fascinating because he's he's saying basically, uh, hey, losers, I played the game. You want to call me a monster, but I followed all the rules to the exact letter. It was you guys who lied about me being a murderer and came after me and my civilian identity. And, and that's the thing. Like the rules were always a Band-Aid solution. And if you followed the letter but not the spirit, were you really following the rules? Because the rules depended on the capes working in good faith with both like both sides, hero and villain, working in good faith to kind of honor those rules. Um, something, something uh, modern day politics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is fascinating because like he is so convinced in his superiority here. Right. Like I did nothing wrong. Um, because I was within the rules of the game. And, and just like he said, like if, if you're, if you're in line with like the, the, the letter of the, the rules, but not the spirit of the rules, are you really, are you really, are you really like, yeah. um, it just seems, it just like, like he's, he's convinced here of his own superiority and it's just, it's just total bullshit because you're right. Like, yes, he fought these guys out in the streets. That is absolutely true. But yeah. that's like, 
he was doing it just like just for the pleasure of it, just to get back against people that um, I mean, he's he's homophobic. He's bigoted. He's was targeting certain people and doing certain things to them for certain reasons. That is like antithetical to the entire point of the rules. So, yeah, I'm staying within the letter of them. But uh, um, yeah, it's it's you did the bit. And that's not to say that what Capricorn did was not fucked up. Right. Like that's that's the world we live in is, yes, what Tristan did was wrong absolutely to to pin a murder on someone that didn't do it is a wrong thing to do but that doesn't mean paris gets to be like the 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 moral the morally superior person in this situation just because yeah i i fought people on the streets even though i was doing hate crimes Mm -hmm. yeah right i mean the the rules it's the rules were constructed for a reason like to to keep things in hand and and to to minimize the escalation and you could almost say that by by violating the spirit of the rules paris invited the escalation that came down upon him um yeah. which is not not to absolve tristan for framing him for murder no um but like you can see the causal chain that led from uh brutally attack two of tristan's friends yeah um to getting revenged upon yeah. And I think that's I mean, part of what we're seeing is here is where the rules can fail. Right. Yeah. Because if he if he if if the support is actually there that, yes, you technically didn't break the unwritten rules, then there's something fundamentally flawed about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I love this part, too, when he's he's mouthing off to Byron. Don't talk to me like you're righteous. If you had any guts, you would have done to him what he did to you. And then Victoria basically calls out this as completely non sequitur because it is it's like not anything to do with what he was talking about. He's talking about what Tristan did to him. And then he's all of a sudden like, well, you would have done it also. If you had any guts. Yeah. Like if you had any guts, you would have been a brutal monster. Yeah. 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 It's (laughs) It's like, fuck you, Paris. Yeah. That's I mean, like the, the amazing thing about Paris is like, we're about to learn like he's this complicated individual, but like his, his basic like code seems to just be bullshit. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Cause he apparently gives most of his money to charities. Yeah. Which I mean, it's almost as if people can be complex, multifaceted, multifaceted beings that aren't, aren't just one thing, right? Like, yeah. like he, he could be terrible in every single way we've talked about him being terrible. That is a hundred percent the truth and still do one thing that is considerate of other people. Um, yeah. that doesn't, that doesn't like, that doesn't absolve him of the terrible things he does, but it also doesn't make it not false that he did that one thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, almost everyone has to feel like they're the hero of their own story. Right. And, and like, they don't walk around thinking they're a monster. So this is his thing that he does to make himself feel like, yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all for the good. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I kind of hope we learn more about him, but I also wouldn't mind if, if this was just Paris walking out of the story either, because yeah. I feel like we, we've learned enough about him to make him complicated. I, I feel like we are going to see more about him though. We might, I mean, who knows? It depends yeah. on which of the two people, uh, our, our number boy. It's true. Smacks. <laughs> it's true. So anyway, uh, the newly arrived villain team is convinced, uh, but Paris's group is not. They offer to tell the heroes what nasty surprise Cradle prepared in exchange for letting their group leave. So apparently the nasty surprise involves Moonsong. Byron switches out so that Tristan can weigh in on things, and he says, do what you have to. Save our old teammate. Paris will get what he deserves eventually. So I want to talk about, I, I want to get to to Tristan 
eventually because I think this is a really important moment for him as a character. But I want to talk about like the shift in Paris here because we've seen Paris like he's 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 holding himself up to be morally superior, right? He's like, I didn't break the rules. You're the one that broke the rules. It was your brother that did this. It's his fault. He fucked me over. I'm the innocent in this whole thing. That's why I was driven to where I am now. And then as soon as like he realizes that um, everyone else is convinced that 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 they when they were out when they were outnumbering Victoria and her team and suddenly they are the ones outnumbered, he just switches. Right. Like he just like it's like a switch goes off on him and he just shifts to this this thing where he just looks at Byron and says, I had a taste of revenge. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this, like all of a sudden this 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 morally superior, holier than thou person is gone mm -hmm. and it's it's like him reveling in his revenge and he's using this this is just another this is just another negotiating tactic for him but it is like it is like a completely different it is coming from a completely different direction it's not coming from i'm the morally superior one now it is truly i am a monster and it is only through dealing with me that you will stave off more monstrosities and that's like creepy right like this is like yeah. a it's like a creepy shift in him like it's just like whoa yeah a shift or just revealing like right, yeah. the way he really is yeah that's in, a good that's a better way to put it it's not like he's changing i think he's just taking off a mask yeah which i mean and that's i think that's what's fascinating is a person can have masks even for themselves right where as he walks around his day-to-day -day, he's thinking about you know hey i'm i'm not a, i'm not that bad a guy and then every once in a while hey i really enjoyed chopping up that woman who um was mean to me one time yeah jesus yeah. yeah so let's talk about tristan yeah um this is this is a big deal for tristan right like tristan has shown that he hates paris and he is irrationally angry around paris to the point where like we there there are moments when we worried he would go too far mm -hmm. um there were moments in the story where we thought that the person that he had he had murdered in this this murder trial this murder charge was paris um it wasn't but here in this moment we see an angry hurt tristan that lets him go that mm -hmm. says that says um save our old teammate moonsong a person that didn't like him because he was gay mm -hmm. um and and she drove him crazy yeah. um understandably so yeah save but, our old teammate paris will get what he deserves eventually i am willing to let him go because our teammate our old teammate a person that didn't like me and i particularly didn't like myself um is is more important than that and yeah. that is that that is growth that that is him putting other people before his own needs and that is something that we did not see in a uh, flashback tristan yeah, I feel like this is a great, like, unambiguous hero moment for Tristan, where he just it, this this isn't a, this isn't an occasion where he's being a hero because it looks really good. He's he's being a hero because it's the right thing to do here. He's he's taking the high road, and it's it's great. Mm -hmm. Love yeah. it. So yeah, that, I love that bit. So the trap that they're going to stumble into is that there are pieces of Tattletale, Moonsong, and presumably others set up strategically to block the heroes from uh, shooting at Cradle. Yeah, this is a uh, really, really cool, Matt. Uh -huh. It's more coolness. It's cool. Um, and that is, it is at this moment when Vulture Hawk suddenly remembers that he too was touched by Cradle, um, where he says, Cray did Nick drip my hand meat. 
uh-huh. which is the greatest line in this entire book. Yep. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, th- this is this is kind of why I just don't buy this stuff, Matt. I, I mean, maybe like maybe it's true for like one person. But once that thing is established and put out there, everyone can just attach to it. And I feel like th- if the whole thing is not um, is not ever is not. A hundred percent false. I think Vulture Hawk is lying here for yeah. sure. It's just like, oh no, actually, um, sorry, I just remembered he he did that thing to me too. Yeah, and um, which is just meet. a signal, just a signal for like I'm out, right? It's uh-huh. just like I'm out, but I get my yeah. I get my free pass to get out. Does Vulture Hawk even have hands? <laughs> Serious question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's uh. Th- th- this I'm much more willing to say that he's he, that, that Vulture Hawk specifically has been struggling with what he did and is just being like, yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna change sides now because I shouldn't yeah. have done that. And I have this clear out that I can just do it. Yep. So Byron laments letting Paris go, um, but Capricorn settles for using their power to unsettle the footing of the departing villains, leading to a nice satisfied satisfying twisted ankle. Um, on contender, it's, not Paris, but yeah, it whatever. doesn't work on Paris, but it's so petty, but like wonderful, right? It's just like, like we had to deal with them, but let's just get, let's just get something in on them. Ha. Yeah. Let's yeah. just get them. It's wonderful. I love it. I yeah. love it. So when they reach Damsel, Swansong tries some of their typical barbed banter and promptly gets slashed by Slashley's claw hand. Flashbang interject, interjects himself into the brewing issue uh, being charming and settling everyone down. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this for like a hundred, hundred hours. Right. Yeah. I mean, my first response here is like, well, they're done. Like, like their, their friendship and, and getting along is, is done. You know, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if I, that's like an overreaction, but it might be I, the thing that it's so like, it's almost as if Swansong walks up to her ready to do like their same old, same old, like just giving each other shit stuff right, that we've right. been seeing for chapters. And then like instead of playing along with her, Damsel is just immediately like, fuck you, like and, and escalates it to 11. And and it's just like, whoa. So yeah. I think I think you're right to feel that way. It's like obviously Damsel is in a really, really bad place right now. I think she's probably pretty embarrassed that she was as defeated as she was. Um, and the, probably the conversation with Carol is, is weighing on her as well. Um, and she's just like not in the mood right now. Yeah. Um, and then of course we get flashbang walking in and being a mediator once again, um, and interjecting himself and, and calming people down. And, and you have this, this, this wonderful, like, Instead of like challenging damsel directly, Swansong just like kills her through kindness, right? And it's just like super nice to people. Yeah. And just like I think Victoria describes it as like grating every every smile and piece of charm is like a, a attack to damsel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really the only the only out here that's not going to just make her lose it. But yeah, it's really impressive growth from Swansong too that she's able to basically back down from this and it's not that she takes a loss is it's, it's that she transcends she takes the upper hand in fact now that i say that out loud it's it's like there's this is a sequence of upper hands where capricorn takes the upper hand by saying no we're not going to go after paris we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna save you know the person who was terrible to me in the past uh, right. swan song takes the upper hand by basically saying 
yep, this is a situation where normally I would have lost it, um, but I'm going to just rise above this and and be my cool-headed supervillain self, not my ranting, insane supervillain self, um, which is which at this point is her superhero self. Although yeah. the joke is that the joke <laughs> is that she's still talking about seducing everyone to the dark side. Yeah, um, and well. It- <laughs> The the thing that I like about this is on this quest to do this, she also kind of like p- pisses off Carol again, I yeah, think, because right. like she's being super nice to Mark. It's like, I'm sure you have other merits, Mr. Dallin. And then you just hear Carol. He does. And it's just it's like it's just like it really supports our whole um, Carol really don't like Swan Song. Yeah. And I don't think she said it like I don't think she said that too specifically poke at Carol, although I'm sure she was thrilled by mm-hmm. uh, the extra effect it had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Victoria kind of steps back and she notes that everyone is on edge and, and raw and that things have been hitting too close to home. Um, and she thinks, and all this while I was thinking of Brandish as my mom and Flashbang as my dad, because right now they were, I associated coming home at the end of the night to medical care and small talk or recaps of the night with family close to home. Pain had a way of bringing us that direction and those traps that hurt exposed raw nerves. Yeah, so I mean, she, she's she's admitting, you know, to herself now how that you know she is raw, not just yeah. everyone else. And yeah, and we're, she we're kind getting, of she, yeah, she kind of looks, um, she kind of looks around and and explains how raw everyone is, and then eventually gets back to herself. Yeah, yeah. So she checks in with Moose, who is just such a good guy, uh, and he neither confirms nor denies that Cradle was, was responsible for the villains being okay with what he did. So, yeah, yep, good question, yeah, and, Mark. And, and this is what we were talking about before, that um, um, it, it is it is, it is almost immature. I mean, Moose says that. It's like, it works even better if it happens to be true, but it doesn't matter if it's true or not. Um, and that's kind of where we leave it. We don't know. And and Victoria's problem here is that it's letting a lot of people off the hook that she doesn't want to let off the hook. Understandably, these people aided and abetted a person who was willing to do some of the worst things ever, right? Um, but... It did what Prancer promised. It de-escalated the situation. It got people on their side. It got them to where they need to go. So those are the trade-offs you make, right? Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are the choices you have to make. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Victoria now gives the hooded top of her costume to Swansong because uh, Swansong's cold part of her costume was destroyed. Um, and I like this bit where she says, it was good back there, the negotiation, getting through a bad situation. I'm proud. I'm pleased too, Swan Song said. I'll turn Breakthrough into some top-notch villains. Just you wait and see. <laughs> she laughed, mostly for her own benefit. And she might have glimpsed the frown on my mother's face because she doubled down on the laughter. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it really is wonderful. And notice again that Carol takes the time. She, she chooses to approach and compliment Victoria when? When Victoria is helping out her friend again she's giving her her sweater she's she's supporting her friend swan song and in this moment carol swoops in and gives and lands a compliment on her which is not something we see carol do very often just outright give a an an unloaded like perfectly simple and straightforward compliment um we don't see that in carol very often um but we see it here and i'm not i'm not saying that carol doesn't believe that the words that she's saying i'm not saying that the compliment isn't legitimate 
but it feels performative here. It feels like we're giving her the compliment now because she's once again looking over and seeing her daughter associate with this woman Mm -hmm. that she don't like very much. And it's like she's trying to like win her back and pull her back. And then I I think on some level, Swan Song recognizes this and is uh, having some fun with her. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is definitely Carol doing leadership doing like a like a, all right it I, I need to give kudos to the team for their performance mm-hmm. in the field today and 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 um it's just funny because i i want i don't know what carol thinks is going on with swan song like <laughs> like does she think that victoria is like in her sway or does she just 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 simply not like that 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 she's around victoria at all like it, it i'm not i'm not sure i don't need it's, it's not that i need to be sure it's yeah. just that I want to understand more so that because it's just so this this background brewing tension is just so yeah. delightful to and me. That's right. That's what I love about it. Is it's just been circling around. Um, we're, we're not drawing direct attention to it, really. Uh, Victoria's monologue is not really drawing direct attention to the to this that that Carol is most around her when she happens to be like really supporting Swan Song. Yeah, um, but it is true and like I, I i don't even know if this has to go anywhere specific right yeah um i think there's just like just has to, can can follow carol's genuine like displeasure with like you know like when i was a kid i had friends that i had that my parents didn't like because those friends got me into trouble or my parents perceived them as friends getting me into trouble and it's just like you don't want to come right out and tell your kid don't hang out with that person anymore because the stubbornness of children is, um, well, I'm going to definitely do it now. Yeah. Um, and I know Victoria's not a child. She's, she's 19, yeah. 20. Well, we're all, we're all between 19 and 21 years old. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, I think her relationship with her mom is, is complex to the point where she would push back on that kind of direct level of engagement. So she just kind of standing back and like observing it, but being like, no, 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 like yeah. and then she has to just swoop in every once in a while and just say something or do something or, try to win over her daughter or 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 demonstrate how not good swan song is stuff like that and i think it's i think it's really great yeah right um i don't know i don't know if i pulled out later when um when carol swoops back by just so that she can say oh yeah 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 we did we did you pulled pull it out. out yeah 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 just so she can deliver criticism <laughs> clearly just to be like never mind Sorry, right. I said anything. Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. First, though. Oh, boy. A harbinger sees that the foes are tracking them, and he says he wants to shoot them with his slingshot. I won't stop you, I said. Maybe don't kill. <clears throat> the harbinger nodded. I said I'd balance the equation. He slipped something like a marble into the slingshot, drew it back as so far that one arm was outstretched, holding the slingshot itself, and the hand with the marble clasped tight was in was, t- yeah, clasped tight in it was against his shoulder. Killing isn't enough, he said. Wait, he released the shot. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, I, oh I, 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 I literally like cackled like a maniac when I read yeah. that, like a crazy person. It was well, fantastic. And and I think why it works so well is because we don't know who it was done to and we don't know what it was, right? Like presumably this is a fate worse than death. That's what that's what the balancing of the equation that we've set up means. Like it's not enough to just kill them. So he's like, yeah, I'm not going to kill him. 
I'm yeah. not going to do this. I don't kill him. We're just going to do yeah. something uh, worse than that. And and Victoria, you've kind of like inadvertently just sanctioned this thing. Yeah. Um, this this fate worse than death that's going to happen to this. And it's just like, um, <laughs> um, yeah. How no. do you feel about this, Vicky? I mean, if that hadn't been what happened, we still would have had to talk about the fact that she says, maybe don't kill. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? What is that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Maybe don't kill. It's like it's it's the most like self-protective thing ever. Right. It's yeah. Like, just may, maybe don't. Yeah. And then like maybe, he, he kills and, and then and then she's like, oh, I guess I guess I wasn't too firm with that order after yeah. being told to be super <laughs> yeah. strict and, and specific with the Harbingers. Well, huh. I, yeah. And I mean that. Yeah, you're absolutely right that that is a callback to she was specifically told be very direct, be very specific do not give them any leeway for interpretation. They are literal monkeys paws yeah. in the form of little boys and you will regret it. Um, and that's kind of exactly what happens here. And I mean, she doesn't feel great about it. Obviously we, we get as she, as she talks with, or she like sits with Sveta at the end of the chapter, she's thinking about this whole thing, but yeah, it's a uh, geez. It's, it's like just kind of what, what the situation has pushed them into, right? Yeah. And she's just like she's she she's in territory she doesn't know how to deal with really. Yeah. Like this is this is all new kind of stuff. Like the 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 level of stakes and and what is right and what isn't and dealing with people that are completely fine with taking life or doing worse um without it without even really considering it. And she's having to work with these people and she just doesn't know how to handle it. And I you can't blame her for that. Like I I don't know how I would handle it. Right, right. Yeah. And and that's all true. I'm 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 still just appreciating this on the level of thing one just did something worse than death to someone with a with a marble. Yeah. Um and thinking that's hilarious. So Yeah. Yeah. But no, all of that serious stuff you said about Victoria is totally true. Too. <laughs> yeah, all that uh, all that super serious stuff, but I thought it was funny. Yeah, it yeah. was. I okay. mean, yeah. I, I love the Harbingers. I love thing one and thing two being in the story. <laughs> so um Victoria then flies over to her parents, uh, floating away from having to deal with just permitting more fates worths than death after five minutes ago, coming down really hard on people who did the same thing. Um, and then her mom tells her, you should be more prepared. Yeah. I mean, she basically goes over there because she's cold uh -huh. and she needs hand warmers. Right. And she knows her parents probably have hand warmers. And her mom, who was so complimentary five minutes ago, is suddenly like, you should be more prepared. And doesn't even give her one. It's her dad that yeah. takes it out. And she might not have one because her dad is like the pack rat, I guess. I didn't put this together until now either. But the re like part of the reason she's cold is she gave part of her sweater to Swansong. Right. So this yeah. is a direct like I need to be warmer now because I, I let Swansong be warmer. And her yeah. mom is like, well, no, because you're going to give more things to Swansong. I know. I almost wish she had said, well, maybe you shouldn't have given your sweater away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is. I mean, like it is so like. Victoria has been going like constantly for days now. Right. So like this idea that, oh, you're rushed to get to the portal to go stop the people who have pieces of your teammates. You didn't have time to swoop by the convenience store and pick up some hand warmers. It's just like, Carol, like you're gosh, you're the worst sometimes. Yeah. Did, did, and her dad just does, does what you should in the situation, which just silently give her one if you have an extra one. Right. Just do that. Didn't Victoria buy some hand warmers recently? Which she makes did. that even I more mean, funny. Yeah, I mean, she's she she did like she she has shown preparedness yeah. in this area in the past. It's just she's kind of like out of right. sorts right now for obvious reasons. Right, 
Right. right. Yeah. So Victoria then leaves the crowd to join Sveta in the darkness of the woods, uh, just sharing space with her, venting a bit. Um, and she All thinks right. to herself, if only there were time, if only they were quiet, if the monsters would just stop. Yeah, I love this too, because she's like, if I could just have some time, if there could just be peace for just a little time, I could help Sveta. I could solve all my friends' problems, all my teammates' problems. I just need the monsters to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then she, in her mind, she's like, is is the necessary thing to do that? Is the is the thing that we need to get them to stop what I just told Harbinger yeah. that he could do? Is that is that what it's going to take? Is that what it's going to take across the board that to, to get to to get to this point, we have to stop them ourselves? And and. I mean, the answer is kind of, yeah, in some cases, I mean, not in all of them, obviously, but in some cases that's, that is what it takes. And that's a, that's a really tough realization for a person that, that sometimes, yes, that is, that is what it takes. And you don't want it to be that way. Like, I still don't want Victoria to kill someone. I don't want her to have to be the one to do it. Um, but it might be what it, what it takes. Yeah. I mean, if you're the one who basically puts herself in the position or, or just is in the position of, um, I, I have to stop the monsters. Right. I can't just, I can't just live my life and have them be out there doing the things they do. Yeah. Then if the, if the monsters are, are like true monsters, then that's kind of what she's going to have to do to stop them. Yeah. And, and we are, I think very intentionally calling back to love lost in this moment as well. Right. Um, this, this, that, that, that was love Lost's thing is like, there are monsters out there. I have to stop them. I have to, I, and I, I have to do whatever it takes to stop them. And she took that way too far. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the, the fear is that you see victorious wrestling with this. Um, and, and we're going to see next chapter that like she's on a ledge that's what the shard describes it as. She could go that way. That could be the way she ends up going. Yeah. And, um, that's, that's scary. Like I don't, I don't, we obviously we don't want that for our character. True. So they reach cradles warehouse and they sneak up on it. It's full of mercenary teams led by parahumans and they're all guarding an egg containing (laughs) the sleeping mall cluster members festooned with bits of their allies. This is your fault. I want you to know. I hope It's it's your stupid egg symbolism my essay on the yeah. egg symbolism you, d- you did a stupid egg essay it's gonna and turn now out. and now cradle made an egg of people it's your fault yep it's gonna turn out that that was the key to cracking this whole story oh God. I, but we're moving on <laughs> i mean i guess i can't blame you since the chapter itself ends with this was an egg uh, with, we couldn't <laughs> easily crack it, it makes the same pun you did it so. makes the same pun i did yeah copying me retroactively <laughs> retroactively copying yeah, yeah right that's it that's the skill wild yeah. has it's yeah. amazing well, he he did path path to copying matt yes he did foreshadow this you know that she hates eggs i mean yeah that well, was, like it's i think we need <laughs> we need to talk about the difference between foreshadowing slash setup and just um and just a callback, right? Like those are different things. One is constructed specifically for that purpose. And the other is just like, Hey, let's, let's reference back to this other thing we did. Yeah. I mean, it's all a gray area, right? But yeah, no. let's, no. let's, let's have no. a super serious conversation about whether the eggs thing was an intentional bit of foreshadowing or we can move on to 12. All <laughs> we can talk about foreshadowing versus a, uh, versus callback in 12. All. Yeah. Um, okay. A, a death of a certain cape. That's true. That's true. But I don't. That makes me sad. Still. 
Okay. Let's let's work up to that, okay? Okay. Yeah. Here we go. So here we go. Um, I think it's fun to pay attention to like the effect that the text is having the first time through as distinct from what we learn like from subsequent passes because this is obviously one of those chapters where you know there's a lot to be learned from it on you know upon study but on the first time through you're it's having a, a separate impression right and like you're instantly aware that something is different and weird because it's it's like 12 dot all that doesn't fit any of the naming conventions <laughs> what's going on yeah and then immediately the text is taking this third person perspective on the protagonist which is just so unusual it's never third person on the protagonist and it's focusing on her labels and, and all, all of the masks that she's chosen to wear yeah yeah I, I made a joke about this on my first read through on my, my twitter account but i really thought just for a moment at the start of this chapter that we had just gone into a third person omniscient point of view, right? Like, like I think it was combined with the fact that the the chapter title was all. Um, and then, and then what we see in the first few paragraphs of this chapter, it was just like, um, we're just going third person omniscient. We're just going to do it. Wow. That's interesting. Um, of course the reality is so, so, so much better than that. Yeah. Uh, better in every single way. But uh, that that was that was something that flashed in my head. And I think that the text kind of primes you for that through the naming convention and just the, the way we start this chapter off. Yeah. So, yeah, it's Victoria's Shard, um, which we're going to call Waste, um, thanks to whoever that was in the Discord. I think it was Kayakin who think, came up with Waste as the name of the shard. Yeah. yeah. And if not, we'll be sure to correct that. But, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kayakin, because that's perfect. Um <laughs> And so Waste actually seems to, like, appreciate Victoria. Like, it thinks she's cool, admires her steadfastness and her resolution as a person. Yeah. I, one of the things that I love about this part of the chapter is we see just, like, this basic understanding from Waste of who Victoria is. Um, and it and it goes beyond just about anyone's understanding of who she is in the story so far, beyond even maybe Victoria's own personal understanding of who she is as a person, um, because like it, it introduces us and throws up all these labels that Victoria has consciously called herself in the past. The, the wretch, the warrior monk, the scholar, glory girl, Victoria, it, it throws and then it goes past that and, and it identifies base traits in this human being that expand beyond labels that are intra label right in every incarnation or with any label worn she's the girl who cannot be swayed from her path she is the woman with more appreciation for gathering information than there is in the usual person person these are two fundamental truths of victoria as a person no matter which label she's wearing on any given day and we know this the reader like this isn't new information to us we know victoria is steadfast we know victoria is thoughtful and studious we've talked about these things many times through the course of this book we know it but by having the shard observe them it establishes its ability and it's it's like its base level of understanding the shard gets victoria um on a level that that was kind of surprising for me yeah um like it, well, it's like so one thing that's immediately apparent is that it's it's actually watching her thoughts. Right. Um, and like it knows that she think that, that she thinks of herself this way. Um, and it, it's it's actually pretty in tune with her. And I think one thing that we're going to probably come back to throughout this episode is that like her shard is a warrior, but Victoria Dallin is a thinker. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot because that's kind of you're right. One of the recurring beats of this section and this chapter as a whole, how 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 the shard and the human are different, how Victoria's base traits, this base understanding of a person that is determined, of a person that is really good and values the gathering of information is seen by the shard and as frankly by all shards as um, a a trait that they will value yeah. and that that in the original plan in the original function of their existence this is something they would want they would want to collect this central part of her and and use it going forward yeah because it even talks about specifically like borrowing of her thought processes yeah yeah the information manner of processing is something that can be borrowed Mm -hmm. right they want it they want that yeah and i mean i wonder if there's anything along the lines that like this is a this is a weak power. Like it's, it's a shard that that's made of like a cast off piece of another shard. And then like a little bit of data from a couple of other shards. And like, so like specifically, you know, is it like, it, it's unique. It's, it's, I mean, okay, this is the first time we've had like a shards chapter, but right. we, we kind of feel like we know a lot about the shards due to everything we've learned about the story so far. And it really seems like her shard is a unique one because like, it, it's actually struggling to understand its own shape and label and, and its own words. It tells us other shards bring more capability than the host needs and then they limit it. While Victoria's shard is made of scraps of Carol's defensive power and, and, and elements of Mark's strength that he's not using and low power pathetic broadcast from Dean at the last second uh, that, yeah. that ended up giving her an emotion power. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's it's uh it's a weak shard. It's a weak power that that she almost is the dominant one in the relationship. Yeah, it's it's a it's garbage. Yeah. And and I love like the flying, which is something that is so important to Victoria. Something that she loves so much is her ability to fly. And that's just like the thing that they all kind of have that none of them really need anymore. So that's just that's just nothing to the shards. That's absolutely nothing. And that's one of the most important parts of her power to her. Um, I love it. I, I, I love this. I love the central idea of them like <coughs> buds, like the buds of shards. Like I think in in universe have like been seen as more powerful like like that just like uh, uh shard buds and you get your powers earlier and you end up more powerful throughout your life um but in in the view in from the shard point of view a bud is just all the shit that the other ones weren't using right like yeah. it's just like it's just all the shit that that the the, the 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 host shards weren't using and i just got it and now i'm just like this amalgamation of of shit that isn't that useful that is only useful in this situation because, and again, that goes back to how the shard views Victoria. Um, she is clever enough to use it in a, in a, in a great way. Yeah. I mean, like when you really think about it, like Theo is not like more powerful than Kaiser. He, Mm -hmm. he, he has the ability to shape that Kaiser didn't. Right. And Aiden is not more powerful than Taylor. He has a different kind of, mode like he has a much larger range and a way of coordinating the power like and, and so like you can almost just sit back from all these buds that we're aware of and be like yeah like this is where that got that person's power discarded an element of how they could have manifested that they just didn't end up needing yeah and then, yeah. And then the the bud took it but this this is really interesting too though because we're talking about like the the, the line um 
the line that that the, the shard itself can't is struggling to understand its own shape is struggling to understand its own label. And I love this because like we, we, we start out and we establish the fact that Victoria picks up and puts down labels as she needs them, right? The warrior monk, glory girl, the scholar, Victoria herself, the wretch, she picks these up and puts them on and wears them when she needs them. And then, but, but she's, she's still kind of internally struggling with which of these are her, which aren't, um, she's like, one of the things we talked about throughout this book is that Victoria has identity issues. She's trying to find herself. And I think it's so fitting to me that her shard is kind of in the same situation. It's, it doesn't know what it is. It doesn't know what its purpose is. It's trying to find itself too. It's just unlike Victoria who can pick up and put on labels and then cast them off when they don't fit anymore. Um, the shard can't find any labels that suit it. It can't find anything. It's just like it's they're both going through an identity crisis, but they're kind of from opposite ways where Victoria can't settle on one identifying thing and the shard can't settle on any. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, that definitely reminded me of uh, Glastiglinier's speech to Taylor about how like the, the the masks are what the shards are like. That yeah. they're, they're almost defined by the masks that the people wear. And, you know, it, it's it's deeper than just a metaphor. It's like that that's why they take on the form of their hosts when she summons them back. That's because that's how they want to manifest. Like that's how they see, that's how the shards see themselves. Um, which, I mean, it does seem like this shard thinks like Victoria. Like I, I, I think it it has this like alien GP two mm-hmm. like mimicry of Victoria's internal monologue even, um, and it, it, it like it's it even seems to think of itself in this kind of derogatory way that she sometimes thinks of herself. Yep, I agree. Yeah, and it's it's I think that's one of the most important factors that we need to be cognizant of as we go through this, and then as we compare it to March's shard here in a bit. Um, you're absolutely right. The shard is in Victoria. It says itself, I am everything she is viewed from another angle, another facet. I am part of her that is entirely in shadow inside skin, blood, skull, and cerebral fluid. The shard is Victoria and also is not Victoria, but being in her, seeing through her eyes, hearing her thoughts, feeling her feelings, it has an effect on it, right? It humanizes it somehow. Remember, like we talked in Worm about one of the reasons why Scion was defeated is because by taking the a human form by, by becoming human in form, he kind of became human in, in mental processing a little bit too. And that's, that's what allowed their, their mental pressure on him, their bullying to work. And I think that's the same thing we're seeing with these shards is that they're, they're adapting human processing and, and um, specific to the, their host that they're in. Yeah. And, and, and conversely, like, like the reason why the queen administrator, you know, killed her entire race uh was because she was just as much becoming taylor as taylor was becoming her you know mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It, it was a it was a bleed through on, on both sides right like yeah because you you it kind of seems like the shards wouldn't have intentionally killed scion no yeah they probably did not want to do that you're yeah. right yeah um you you would think Based but on, i think yeah one of the one of the the passages that I think really enforces this idea that um, that it is emulating her thought process, but maybe even like just just it it is thinking on its own. It is feeling these its emotions itself, but it is forming them through the way Victoria would. Is this when she's talking about Dean? The section where the the, the shard is talking about how um, 
later Victoria came together with Dean and uh, he fucked her, made love to her, whisper to her, fight with her, hold her, laugh with her, talk of her vulnerabilities, of hopes and dreams, of identity, of school, of costume. Like, I just think it is such a it is such a fundamentally human thing to differentiate between fucking her and making love to her. Right. Those are those like. It is the same act, but viewed in it through a different lens. Yeah. And the fact that the shard is able to parse those as different things is to me distinctly human. Yeah. Yeah. It cares about these things. Right. And like it, the shard obviously cares about the distinction between those two things. It Not only does it recognize the difference between them, but it understands the difference between and, them. And it's thinking about Dean, which I think is mind blowing because he he's like this touchstone for her and what's fascinating is like the shard is also still thinking about dean mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah. and i mean and it makes sense for the shard because the shard is 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 if not it, it, i was going to say like ju- just as imprinted on dean if not more so because it, it is a it, its powers are based on his powers and yeah. it's like he's perpetually a part of it um and, and I, I like how it, it starts out with the more human things and then it kind of segues into the more like things shards would care about, like identity and costume, mm-hmm. um, which are which are what like the shard definitely seems preoccupied with that, with, with yeah. identity, with cape stuff. Yeah, because it doesn't know what it is. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, Waste has broadcasted and strained, looking to communicate, looking to gather information and to make contacts but she can't find any other shards that aren't dead and broken like her, disconnected from communication, disconnected from power sources, all due to the destruction of the warrior hub, Scion. Yeah, and in this moment, the shard nicely defines what it what it considers death. Death is stasis. Death is disconnection. Disconnection from all communication. Disconnection from other wells of power. I have what I have. I cannot grow. I cannot connect to others and seek their input or resources. Um, I, I think this fits really nicely into our conversation around death in the last arc. Uh, death as this 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 stasis, this inability to change, this inability to grow, this inability to connect. Going back to this this imagery we've been talking about it again and again lately is this the fact that power is found in groups, power is found in connection between people. Death is found in isolation, and that is something that the shard feels is true as well. Um, I think like this, this one part here, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this and I apologize for it, but this got my brain just going crazy as far as what this could be saying and could be doing with the themes of this story. Last week, we talked about the difference between Victoria's interconnected network of capes, um, and, and the individual capes struggling to deal with their own shit as side piece put it. And I want to say, I think we have to say that Victoria's goal for her hero organization seems very remnant of what a shard would call their their hub their network yeah. right like their ability to communicate with each other and share information and and share strategies and and work together um it's a very similar thing and i think we're supposed to draw that connection yeah but um we have here the shards recognizing this power that we've been talking about through all the, the, this book and last book this idea of community of network of people or shards of working together of communication trading information teaming up not being alone the shards recognize the power of that because it was all based on that hub and they want it they want it back and they don't have it but the thing is people still can like people have not lost that ability 
to to communicate and to to come together and to team up and to support each other. And that's fucking amazing <laughs> because like all throughout Worm, Taylor wanted to do that, right? Yeah. Taylor's goal was to get people working together. And that's the, the amazingness of that that one line that no one will ever forget. Um, but they were they were they were fighting against a bad guy that was perfectly networked together. Like a better a better version of a network, you could argue, than humans could ever be mm-hmm. unless like unless like one bug lady like forces them all to be. Yeah, um, right. But that's gone now. That's not there anymore. The shard network is down. They don't have that ability anymore, but people still do. And I think that says so much about where the story could go. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, the direction I go with this is we, we actually have several characters, many characters in this story who are all trying to create their own little hub, mm-hmm. um, Hollow Point, the, the hero organization, even what Citrine is doing in a sense, like mm-hmm. basically trying to consolidate power um, for, for the purpose of, of stability and, and reaching out and networking. Um, so the, so the question is, is this the shards influencing the people or the people influencing the shards? And of course it's a trick question, which we all know the answer to at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's both. It's both. Um, yeah. But, but I think the fact that it's both is, is still fascinating because, because Victoria is the type of person who would be, who would be doing this. And, and, and I feel like she, she is actually influencing her shard, but I feel like her shard is also influencing her to, to pursue this agenda because yeah. Rashard also wants communication on sure. its own terms. But I, but I do think we see as this, this part of the chapter continues, like how, how much more in control Victoria is in this uh, relationship than the shard. Yeah. Um, and and we'll focus on that when the, the text points that out. But I think that's important to, to think about when, when considering this relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I basically, yeah, the, the shard, um, the, the waste shard actually like regrets that she can't give Victoria like more power that she can't mm-hmm. modify the wretch, for example, to, to make it obey her will. Um, and she's like, yeah, if only I could tap into my fellow shards, I would make my host strong because my host is awesome and I love her. Yeah. And that's a very like, that is not a mentality that we actually knew okay those aren't her words and i'm calling the shard a her which tells me how like personified it is <laughs> um but th- those aren't those aren't the, sh- the shards exact words but that really seems to be the sentiment that's coming through is that she's she wants victoria to be stronger and like this is a, this is a priority for her and um and, and yeah like she wants her to be stronger so she can be a better like death machine um so that she can you know perpetuate the cycle and so forth but like she she likes victoria i think that's awesome and interesting yeah i I think i think you're right um but i i also think this is where things start to get really really interesting yeah um because yeah like you said her shard basically says if the network was still up i could make the wretch go away i could do that tomorrow i'd link up with my other shards i'd borrow power and i could return victoria's force field to the one she wants you go back to the way the force field was before she'd get rid of the wretch and she'd be better she'd be stronger or at least the shard's definition right. of better. 
and well, stronger. Well, and, and that was my first thought was was I don't think I don't think the shard would bring it back to the way it was. I think it would give her like a multi tentacled monstrosity that she was in control of now. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because that's that's much more shard fuckery logic, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. But I, I think this is really worth looking into because. I think one of the things we've talked about is and one of the things I've decided and and I will continue to believe this until I see something in the book that makes me think otherwise. But that that one of the big things this book is is exploring is this concept of recovery, about finding a way to exist, you know, beyond your trauma, beyond the thing that happened to you, that that has wrecked your life and, and taken over your life. Um, and if we continue to extend our shard equals trauma metaphor that we've been talking about since the beginning of this story to broken shards, well, that starts to say some interesting things, doesn't it? Because what can a living shard do that a dead shard can't? Well, it can adapt. It can change. It can learn. And we talked about this, I don't even, a year ago about the idea that one of the, the most difficult parts about dealing with trauma is, is it's sneaky and it can like, it, it, it learns how to get past your coping mechanisms. It learns how to sneak up on you when you don't expect it. It adapts to you. But now it doesn't anymore. In, 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 in the extension of this metaphor, the shards are dead. They cannot change. They cannot adapt. This is a, this is a fundamental shift in how people in this story can if they choose to overcome their trauma how they can beat it because they've moved past the stage where your your trauma can adapt to you can can counter you can sneak up on you can can do all these things that's not true anymore these are dead shards now they can't do that they can still learn they can still kind of push and prod you um trauma is still like that it's still difficult but they can't adapt they cannot change and that gives me a little bit of hope for for this, this whole thing of recovery. That that this, this to me is a window to how that will be possible. Yeah, I think they were more right than they knew when they said that defeating Scion, you know, meant that that now they were, you know, th- th- if they beat Scion, they could they could beat the the urge to to fight that was within themselves because, yeah. you know, Citrine said the the Cauldron Capes have less of a conflict drive. That's that's sort of true. It's also the case, I think, that this that the cauldron capes always had dead shards. That they always had a right. trauma that was in some sense fixed and, and that they could work their head around. They were always less influenced by their trauma. It was still there, but it was less of a thing. Now now all of the even the scion triggers have this have this capacity to, to work around yeah. um the tr- and, and be be more like the cauldron capes, which is I guess positive, yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so. I, I mean, hope like, so. I just I look at that and say, say, like, I look at the fundamental question of how do you get past a trauma that is willing to change itself to make sure that you can't. Right. And I'm, and I'm personifying trauma, right. but I'm doing that because that's, I think, metaphorically what the story is doing. Yeah. I mean, but but that is, I think, trauma, I think, is insidious in that way or can be. And I just see this as a path forward. I see this as a path out for our characters and that fills me with hope. And, and the thing I love about it is it doesn't mean it's going to be easy just because these shards are dead, just because your trauma can't adapt as, as efficiently to you doesn't mean that it's not going to still rear its ugly head. Um, mm-hmm. It just means that there, that there, that you can kind of see the light at the end of a very, very long tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like, so, so the shard says I would do as some did before we were all broken 
and reach out to others nearby and urge them to test and not destroy. Some would ignore me, but some would listen. They would do what was in their power to steer their hosts. And I just, this is like maybe my favorite paragraph out of the whole chapter because Victoria's Shard <laughs> wants to play cops and robbers. It does. It, it does. And There's, it, it, would, it might even call the, the ones who won't listen the monsters, you know? It's, yeah. It's great. Yeah. And, and this is the Shard explaining what the conflict drive is. This thing that we've talked about over and over again throughout these stories. The conflict drive. How does it work? This is how it works. A Shard would broadcast to all the Shards around it and go, hey, Let's let's yeah. fight. Hey, let's you and him fight. <laughs> yeah. And then um, yeah. some shards would respond and go, OK, let's do it. And then they would do it. Yeah. Um, but that's gone now. And the con- that means the conflict drive this. This thing is gone, too. And not entirely. Right. We see in this chapter that shards still hold hold tools. Um, it describes uh, it's, it's describing you know, dealing with the wretch as, as trying to turn a stealing wheel with a screwdriver. But I think that also extends to its influence over Victoria in general. Like there are methods to do it, but because it can't coordinate these actions among the hubs means that influence is just a lot less overarching, right? That yeah. it's, it's just, it's just, and it means that w- when humans are fighting t- today, it's mostly just humans doing human things. Like yeah. I think, I think the the conflict drive was always overestimated in in its effect on people. But I think in in the world of this story now, we have to say even more so yeah. than than ever. Yeah, yeah. In in Ward, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. So this all makes me wonder. Like Scott, I wonder have the shards become a little bit domesticated since the death of the Warrior Hub? Like since they now can't communicate with each other, are they all just mainlining human cognition instead of alien death crystal agendas and and thus they're becoming like individually more human like? I think I think so. I think I think 100 percent. And I think that's what one of the things that that this section of the story is is trying to demonstrate to us. Like I, I we, we talked we touched on that um, driving a, a steering wheel with a screwdriver thing. And and she she is talking about this. The shard is talking about um controlling the wretch that way i managed her force field self her wretch as a driver of a car would attempt to steer with pliers and screwdriver wedged into wires festooned into place where the wheel should be this is a human reference matt this is a hundred percent a human reference this is an alien species talking about controlling someone like they were trying to drive a car yeah which is something that the shard has never done (laughs) it is it is it is pulling into its banks um things to compare trying to control this wretch to and what it pulls from is a human experience. And I think, I think that is absolutely what it is doing is, is trying to show and demonstrate how human this thing has become. Yeah. Um, and then it thinks if she finds a label for herself that I can also wear, then we may lay waste to all who stand before us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, maybe not that domesticated. <laughs> right, right. I think still at the core of their programming, at the center of it all, they are they 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 are programmed or or built or live to want certain things. Right. They they still Victoria Shard still throughout most of this part of the chapter spends time talking about how cool it would be to learn and use things from her and to force conflict drive. And there's that point where it says she's standing on a ledge and she could easily go toward tyrant and overlord. And I would make her feel very good if she went that way. Um, It's still it still wants these things. It's still not like I think the shards are still bad guys, Matt. (laughs) They're still not good. Um, But. 
But the important thing is here, I think where the chapter leaves us is this idea of they have achieved an equilibrium, Victoria and her shard. But the combined us that the equilibrium found is her and not I, Uh meaning that in this arrangement, Victoria is more in charge than the shard is by far. And I think that's important, especially as we compare it to, I don't know, like the next person in this Uh chapter. Yeah. Like, for example, as we switch over to another facet of the great all that makes up shardom (laughs) um, or another three facets, I should say, because March's shards take in way more data. Um, So, yeah. so, So first of all. It's March. She's got three shards. It's March. It's yeah, very, she's a cluster trigger, so it's, it's three. It's, it's very different. It's very different, and there's, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of contrasting, okay? Just, that's we have to point. do it. We have yeah. to do it. I think that's the point, right? That's, that's yeah, the reason to set up this way. the point. So March's shards, uh, they take in way more data than March herself is aware of, including facts about the shards she's fighting, and they package it in nice little instructions for her to follow. And for me, this on the one hand explains why thinkers are so strong in this world. And it also like conversely explains why they're so dominated by their shards. Cause like Victoria is the thinker of her pair. She's the driver, mm-hmm. but March is the puppet of her yeah. shard. Um, but like, yeah, so like, but the shards that they just know so much more than they can ever even clue you in on. Like they know what shards are for one thing. Yeah. Like, but they don't ever tell you that they're just, they're just packaging their information in, in a way that you can use. Yeah, I, I, I like that you pulled that out. That's some really nice detail. And that's one of the things that overall I really like about this chapter from a 500 foot level is this is an expository chapter in, in a certain extent. The purpose of this chapter is to fill us in on a whole bunch of information that we've been wondering about or that the book has been subtly maneuvering in the background. It is an info dump chapter, but it is an info dump chapter in the middle of an action scene. Yeah. <laughs> like it is, like the, the rest of this chapter is one continuous action scene while we're kind of viewing from a third party um, that's kind of kind of removed from the action, but it's still very tense, um, like really kinetic type of action. Um and I, and I think that like being able to mix those two things, and we've talked about Wild Bill's ability to do this many times, but being able to mix all this exposition into an action chapter um, is is great. And that's what I think we see right here at the beginning of this part is that like she's fighting, and we're also learning how thinker shards work. Yeah, right. And and it it suddenly makes a tremendous amount of sense why it's you know so so capable, right? Because it's like I. I know what I know everything that shard is capable of. So we're going to create a strategy that counters that and March will never be aware of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So and, and I so speaking of which, speaking of exactly that, I, I think people are rightly loving this bit where March's shard digresses into a recollection of the shard uh, of the cycle uh, in, involving molluscoids <laughs> that stood in like metal encasements a mile high waiting through thick gases. Yeah. Yeah. That almost defeated the shards and stopped the cycle. Right. Yeah. It's this kind of Wildbow really likes to do this every once in a while, just like drop some information and give you barely enough on it, but just enough you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what? Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Like I I remember like the the pregnant cape back in the I forget which battle it was, but the one that just like took 
He's pregnant with his teammates. And, yeah, pregnant with his teammates. And it's just, it's, just, it's just these moments where, like, they're just dropped in. And they don't ever have to pay off in any kind of meaningful way, right? It's just, like, stuff that's just, like, where you go. You just get, like, a, a little window into, into Wild Poe's mind. And you're just like, what? what? Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's great. But I, th- these are peppered throughout these yeah. stories. And well, I think they add add something really, like, it's it's an intangible addition but it's it's enjoyable yeah well who didn't spend at least part of the last week like thinking about the molluscoid world <laughs> I, I know i did i'm sure you did uh so march fights tempera and withdrawal two capes who i can't help but suspect wild Bo selected because we love them yep. and they're so pure and good and he's getting us ready for more horrible things to happen very shortly because by the end of this skirmish they're either dead or at least very badly maimed Yep, this is what you get for uh, loving people. Is yep. they, they die. They get their head smashed in and then a, a two-minute counter till they fall to their death. Yep. Um, Got to wonder how Finale is going to take this. Um, not well. I'm not even uh, going to make that joke where I say, oh, they're going to be fine, Scott, because I'm too sad. Well, I mean, it's very possible that withdrawal could be okay. It, I'm pretty yeah. sure Tempera is uh, is head smashed. Yes, yes, probably. I, I think I think there's a good chance that you're right, actually. But but I'm just too sad. It's it's very sad. So when March imagines her, so sorry, text when their March imagines herself a conductor, her rapier in hand, directing movements and directions. It is a very Earth thing and a very March thing. Mm-hmm. So like this this moment among many, and I'm just I just picked this one line out because I think it kind of exemplifies the idea that I'm trying to get at. Like this is science fiction alien mindset joy overload for me. So like of course worth pointing out again that all this is from the shard's point of view, focusing on the things the shard focuses on, not the things Marx focuses on. And I think it's intentional that we get these sci-fi vibes from Three Face Three Furious that. <laughs> we didn't get from waste like waste wants to be on the same wavelength as Victoria. And I, I think you said earlier um, when we were chatting about this, that it, it, it admires her. Mm-hmm. Whereas three face off is just like a trio of alien shards who think that Marge is kind of a cute weirdo. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and it is reflected in every bit of how the point of view of the shard describes things, describes March. Like it, it calls her our little March, which is inherently infantilizing and also possessive, right? She is ours. Yeah. Um, March seems to be just so much more of a tool of this cluster than waste considered Victoria. And, and, and you got to wonder like why this is. And I think we kind of learn it by the end of this chapter, but like part of, part of my curiosity around this was like the, just the general makeup of the shard right like it could be you know waste is just was waste bits mm-hmm. to reface isn't um, yeah. or might not be but what about the fact that that waste is alone is a lone shard and mm-hmm. the three face gateers are not they're mm-hmm. a cluster right so all waste has is victoria they still have each other and, yeah. and and we've talked about power and community. Maybe there's power in that community in the bad way that it is reinforcing their alien habits and making and they are less affected by the humans around yeah. them. I, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, I, I I honestly just think that's that's the way it is. Like 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 we said, waste you know uses words like we and and our and right. and and almost almost verges on thinking of herself and Victoria as the same person. 
um, in, in like viewed from a different angle, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas March is their little March. She's the little thing. They tell her what to do. They yep. help her. They don't even. You almost don't think they would care if she died. Yeah. Like the, the like they don't seem to care too much that Homer died. No, in fact, I see it as an advantage because yeah. that means that uh, the power is being drained slower. Yeah. Because right. one less person is using it. Yeah. Um, so a, a trio of dragoncraft approach and March evades. She cuts a hole through a roof and she briefly pauses to appreciate the plant life that has taken root in the shade of the post-apocalypse. I am so glad you pulled this out because this is one of those moments that you kind of like the first time you're reading, you really just breeze through, right? Like you just, oh, there's plants and she makes comments with the plants. Okay, what's going to happen next? Um, but the second time I read this and I kind of sat with it a minute because one thing we know about March is she doesn't really care about life, right? Like she, she sees life is as irrelevant compared to what comes next, mm-hmm. right? Um, to her rejoining the source, reconnecting to the node, which is not the word she'd put on it because she doesn't quite understand it, but that's what it is, um, is, is more important than anything on this plane. And yet she stops here in the middle of this battle and admires that the life here is still managing to eke out existence. She says things keep going. She says, and then after that, she says it's validating. The fact that life can survive the most horrible things ever is validating to her. And I wonder, I wondered about this for a while because this seems interesting coming from her. Um, it validates her that life can survive horrible things. It, it almost, it almost is proof positive of what she wants to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously what she's trying to do is much more abstract, but I think that she she's trying to create a kind of apocalypse to usher in something like a a better post-apocalypse mm-hmm. um, in her mind. And I think the great, like, perfect wild bow moment of the chapter is when we learn that it's not going to happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's not for a minute, though. Yeah, we'll um, get there. So I think it's really interesting that um, the three faces mentions like that the Eden shards um, th- that rather some particular shards are, are already out of energy. And that was just like a one sentence throwaway. But I was like, well, that sounds like something the parahumans would really care about if they, if they learned that some people's powers were just like running out of juice. Yeah. I wonder how many of our good, good friend capes are close to that already. I wonder mm-hmm. if Contessa is close to that. Yeah. I mean, that would <laughs> make sense, right? Yeah. Supposedly using this extremely costly power. Mm-hmm. So March jumps out a window and then she survives Vista's attempt to move her landing spot out from under her due to support from her allies. Yeah. And I think it's 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 worth knowing that um, that she, March is heavily supported by her allies here. Right. Um, we've been talking so much lately about the power of cooperation, the power of community, the power of togetherness. And March's group is basically a network of capes, right? Like it's, it is, she's managing this network of capes with the aid of her power. She's kind of her own node and, and we're seeing the power of that node, right? Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's a fantastic point. We, we, I just said like, there are a lot of characters who are trying to serve this role of maybe being their own new node and March is certainly one. She's even, you know, she, she has her own weird lens on it where she views it as her mega cluster Right. And and that's almost like an explicit attempt to be a hub. Right. Yeah. And she's yeah. not actually doing that. Like she's not actually being a hub. But in her in her mind as a human, she's coordinating shards around her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and she even has access to this, you know, this power that that is a a um, a line to 
um, to a power bank, right? Like that's, which is sort of something you would want if you were going to create your own node or your own hub or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, the power, the power battery cape. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Um, so March's relatively large team presses the attack, uh, on the heroes. Oh, sorry. I skipped something. I got discombobulated by coughing. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I, I like this bit where, and, and this this speaks to a lot of what we were just saying. As as March uh, prepares her attack, she says, "Quantity over quality." March's thoughts are entirely in line with the three the three faces that guide March's abilities. Follow this line of attack. Understand it. They approve. Um, and it's like, yeah, this is what we were saying about like they're they're like sitting back and judging her actions. They're, they're not. Um, they're not obeying her will. They're like happy that she's on board with their, you know, yeah. mentality. It is. It, yeah, it is. It, I think it, you're exactly right. That's what it is, is that, that, that she is behaving according to their, and, and it's not necessarily to say they are directly influencing her behavior, but everything she's doing is exactly entirely in line. Like that, that, that is such a, a, a powerful phrase, right? It is entirely in line with the, the three. Her thoughts are, hundred percent in line with it. And one thing we saw through Victoria and through the waste was that their thoughts were not entirely in line that, that waste wanted Victoria to go down a different path. She wanted, she's on the precipice and it, it kind of wanted her to go to that, that tyrannical way. And it, it's not that they, they're not fully synced. The equilibrium between Victoria and her shard is more her than I yeah. is what the shard says. But here, in in March and this cluster, everything is in line. The equilibrium is com- entirely equal, and they're all on the same page, going towards the same place. Yeah. And that could explain um, why she is so effective, yeah, why uh, she is right. so powerful. Right, because we we know from the story, capes like Jack and Bonesaw, the ones where the shard was was almost a hundred percent perfectly in line, right, with the host, are the ones who. The, the the shard rewards them and gives them more and more i guess flexibility with what they can do yeah and, and just yeah. gives them victories basically mm-hmm. um yeah so march's relatively large team presses the attack on the hero's rooftop holdout march cracks through their defenses with a handful of 10 bouncy balls imbued with her explosive power and time to detonate at just the right moment to cause maximum destruction at this, she and her team press the attack, her well-chosen team working effectively to counter the hero's powers. She takes a bullet, but this doesn't stop her from stabbing Vista through the breastplate and exploding her chest, which is a sentence that I just had to read all the way through because there was no way of writing that that wasn't going to make me upset. So now we're done. I guess we can yeah. talk about it. I'm we'll gonna, move on very quickly. Go There's not a lot to the s- other room and cry. <laughs> There's not a lot to say about this other than it's sad. Um, I liked Vista a lot. I think everyone likes Vista and we kind of saw this coming for a while. Um, I saw it coming from the last conversation we shared with Victoria and I didn't want to, but I did. And it's devastating. Um, I will say that I, I appreciate that Vista's final action was saving Carrie added, right? That the, yeah. like, it is pointless for you to stay here, go, uh, leave. Um, yeah. it's gotta be one of us. It doesn't have to be both of us. Um, and that's, you know, Vista goes out a hero to the end. And I think that's, that's great. It's sad, but I'm I'm glad I'm glad she was a hero even at the end of everything. And 
I, let's not talk about it anymore. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess just talk about the fact that like it, it really, it really bummed me out. Like I was, sure, yeah. I, I had to like that was one of the reasons why I think it took me this long to process the chapter and why it was probably wise, inadvertently, <laughs> inadvertently, accidentally wise for us to take longer, because <laughs> it took me probably a full day or two to like be able to think about anything other than than that basically to to get to the point of really thinking about all the shard stuff and yeah and everything else that's going on in these chapters because i was just like man like that 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 sucks that that hurt you know i i I was i was i was like sad i was kind of mad i was mad at the chapter because that (laughs) makes a lot of sense but that's that's where your brain goes yeah when when you're upset you know yeah and i mean i think one of the things it is, is, is kind of a subversion in its lack of subversions, right? Uh Like, like we had this, this feeling of finality between her and Victoria in that conversation. Then we have, I mean, March outright declare that she was going to kill Vista. Then we see the city unfold exactly as March said it would when she was dead. And in your mind, you're like, well, certainly it can't be telegraphed this much and then do it. But sometimes that's the way the cookie crumbles. Right. And I think like the, the shock of it, um, in this, like, I, I love like it's mid sentence. Like, like she, she clears Carrie at it away. And there's this moment where you think, okay, she's cleared her away. Now there's going to be this battle. And yeah, Vista might lose this battle, but there's going to be this fight between the two of them on the roof. And it's going to be this epic fight. And like mid sentence yeah. gone, yeah. dead. Um, yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's basically, it's not even given its own like paragraph break, right? you know? Right. Which n- normally they are. And I think that's all because like we're, we're in, we're in shard POV. We're right. The shard in, doesn't give a shit. It yeah. Doesn't the shard care. doesn't give it. The shard probably cares less than March even does. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'll, almost certainly because yeah. shards give zero fucks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess I just wanted to say before we move entirely on that the, the twist of the knife was when Defiant stops firing at the rooftop out out of shock. Oh my god! And you're just like, ah. Uh. Well, yeah, and I think that one of, one of the things like all these people survived this terrible, terrible thing, and and they've been fighting since then, right? There's been things they've been dealing with off off world, um, dealing with other struggles, and but I don't know if they've lost people in a while, right? I don't know if they've really significantly lost people or significantly been up against threats. To where losing people um, was something they had to deal with regularly, mm-hmm. and I think this is such a this is such a shocking moment for our characters that like they're kind of thrown back into stakes of this level, um, yeah. or maybe they weren't prepared for it. And I think to me that's the subtext of Defiance Pause. There is yeah. that um, yes, it's it's showing how much he cares and how shocked he is, but like oh. I didn't know that was the type of fight I was having. Yeah. And now, now it, now it's that right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, other people have died. Like the, we've had two other people die in this group yeah. and, and she's killed other people in the other chapters before, but this is, this is different because it's personal for us and it's personal for him too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that was well orchestrated from a, you know, from a writing point of view that we, we've seen how deadly she is, but it was all people we didn't know. Right. Not even secondary characters like Withdrawal, who you know we kind of like, but you know he's a he's he's a, very. I mean, he's no he's not he's Vista, background, right? right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're just building up to this, so yeah. Um, so I, I, I just kind of a 
throwaway line almost where three face thinks of foil um who is just like somewhere else entirely yeah uh, she's actually with victoria's team uh but the shards don't make any distinction they're just like yep she's over there she's yeah she's hiding in the woods and uh we're also helping her at the same time <laughs> yeah and it says it says foil watched and you're like wait foil's there no foil's not there right. but yeah like it's it's perfect in line with the shards because they don't make any kind of real distinction there yeah um, they just it's just like space space distance is irrelevant for them yeah maybe this is another reason why like um the cluster um shards are so still inhuman is that they are they want their host to kill each other whereas victoria's shard is just like i want this this is my only host i wanted to yeah. survive yeah that could be yeah yeah um so march thinks about shard heaven and as the three faces dwell on the subject in their own in their own words they're basically like so it seems like march briefly had access to the warrior hub connected shard world which she wouldn't have had much access to in the first place uh, but now she doesn't realize the hub is dead and the infinite library is gone and then they think what it would really be like would be two people in a room with no light no stimulation only words screamed and shouted at one another the powers will burn out in time, but the data that lives on in the shattered network, that will last for quite some time. Quite some time. A set of words drawn from March's memory of her mother. It bears a vastly different meaning when they operate on the time scale of eons, as a matter of fact. Yeah, this is this weird moment, right? Because, like, on the one hand, you're like, ha, you're wrong, March. <laughs> Fuck you. Then you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, but yeah, then you're like, oh, shit. And also it means that everything she's done is absolutely for nothing, right? Like, like the people she's killed yeah. is as meaningless as her goal. And right. that's just like, fuck, fuck you. Yeah. Um, um I, I didn't make much of it when I pulled this out, but the idea that it pulls words from her memory of her mother is very shardy. Yeah, absolutely. Quite some time. Yeah. 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 It's perfect. It's there. Time is so important to March. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it pulls, it pulls and And there's one, there's one really interesting bit here that jumped out of me in this area that I want to talk to you about because I find this utterly fascinating because when they're talking about the, the point where March got a hint of the net, network, saw the network, um, that she probably wasn't supposed to, um, the shards three face list this as, the point she truly became theirs. Um, and once again, we have possessive here. We have the shards owning March in a way that Victoria shard did not. And I, 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 I am fascinated by this because like truly became theirs. We've, we've talked about how different three face and waste view their hosts. Right. Um, and, 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 and host, is a, is a word that I thought was interesting. And I, mm. so I did some research and waste calls Victoria, her host like 15 times mm -hmm. throughout her small section. The word host comes up in March's section of the story, March's shards of the story one time. And it is to describe Homer's death. It is helpful that our third has no host anymore is the only time host is said in the point of view of March's shard. They do not view March as their host anymore. Mm -hmm. She is our little March. Mm -hmm. She belongs to us. We are not, she's not just hosting us. She belongs to us. Mm -hmm. And I think this is fascinating because I, you look at that, the point she truly became theirs, like 
perhaps, and I'm just speculating, but perhaps there was something in, in the, when, when March, her consciousness connected to this network, um, when maybe it shouldn't have made something happened, there was an error, um, and it connected, maybe something happened to where the shards were able to influence more control over her than, um, than in a normal situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, the tough part of this is we only have one other one to compare to. Right. And, and so like both of these shards seem to be unique, but our only comparison point is from each other. Yeah. So we don't know is Victoria's way, the standard and March is just completely unique to that is March's way, the standard and Victoria's way completely unique to that. Or are they both unique? And the point is that every shard human relationship now in this post scion world is a unique relationship. We don't know. Yeah. But I, this is all so fascinating to me and I really, I really, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. I definitely feel like we're seeing two exceptionally unique ones because I think there have always been hints that Victoria's power was a weird one. Mm -hmm. Like second gen trigger is already rare in the first place. And it's one that had like multiple pings, which is also weird. Um, normally they're more kind of straightforward, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and March, like what, what she experienced reminds me a bit of like what Taylor kind of, I mean, it's not that similar, but it's, it's like a, a wall was broken down, right? Like Panacea yeah. knocked down a wall in a certain sense, a wall was broken down for, for yeah. March. She saw things she shouldn't have seen, which almost necessarily implies the shards had access that they shouldn't have had, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, if, if it's, if, yeah, if it's broken, if it's if one side is true, then the other side naturally has to be true as well. Yeah. I, I like, I like that viewpoint. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we've seen, we've seen this character that is so in tune with her shards. Like they're directly in line. She is so effective on the battlefield. She is devastating and, and doing all this stuff. And you wonder, is this hinting at, at why this is, is this hinting at what is going on here? Why she is unique in this way? Why the shard host, I don't even want to call it that because it's they don't they don't call it that um why it's unique yeah yeah it's it's fascinating and and i i want to learn even more which is a funny thing to say because this chapter was so full of information but <laughs> right i think right. that's that's the thing about these the way wild those always doled out the kind of the setting information in these chapters is you're always like oh this is awesome more <laughs> right sure right. you're never like that's enough you know yeah. which, which i think is actually the right way to do it um because i think you're right yeah yeah so March's team moves to the time bubble containing Jotun, Alabaster, and Dauntless, passing an Atlas memorial statue. But somebody broke the statue, Matt. I am fine with the world ending. This world doesn't deserve yeah, to live if they break an Atlas statue. Burn it all. Yeah. And uh, we're finally going to get to see what happens to Dauntless when he gets out of the bubble. It's totally yeah. worth it. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> totally worth everything that we were just put through. Um, Alabaster and Dauntless immediately second trigger their shards originating a huge broadcast so full of information and energy that it knocks every other shard within a few dimensions offline to process. Which explains what happened to Victoria and company and their battle and why that happened. So thanks for wrapping that up for us, book. All wrapped up. And then so it's specified that Dauntless's trigger is a broken trigger um, and it is not stated that Alabaster's is a broken trigger. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, because I wasn't clear on that the first couple times, um, and it says basically from from the shard's point of view, what a broken trigger is is a desperate clutching at a well too intense and dangerous 
collecting waste and fragments, extrapolating out wildly without program or logic. So it's just a broken computer yep. trying to compute. Doesn't really have the guidance necessary to really manifest as a as a safe power, and it's cha- trying to channel too much energy in doing so, basically. Yeah, and now we have a giant Dauntless yep. with four years worth of power-ups all going off at the same time, mm-hmm. all broken. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yep, and and then, of course, I I, I think it's, it's almost more subtle. It's almost so subtle you can miss it, but, like, Alabaster... Is also having some like massive power up, but yeah, but not a broken trigger. So presumably, Alabaster is going to be in charge of of his power when when he comes out of this. I don't know. Yeah, we'll I don't know. I don't know. So, um, but of course, March started her stabbing motion before the second triggers happened. So her blade successfully kills Jotun, um, who we now realize is Ixnay's cluster mate. <laughs> that was the whole reason they did this, literally. To get Ixnay's cluster mate. Yeah, just so just so the power can be transferred to Ixnay. Dauntless was just um just some just collateral. Collateral that they didn't actually care about, which is just wonderful and infuriate infuriating uh-huh. and at all the same of, time. All the heroes they killed too. Yep. So they hack off Jotun's arm for the power transfer and and um and she wraps up the chapter saying something like I call me a romantic. Yeah, something fucking terrible. Just completely fucked up. Yeah. I love March as a character, oh, by yeah. the way. I mean, I hate her. Yes. But, I mean, the book is designed to make you hate her, and I think it works. The reason I love her as a character is because the book is working on me so well. Yes. Yes. I've hated her ever since her interlude, yeah. and I love continuing to hate her. I love hating her. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's 12 all, Matt. That was a lot. Yep. It was a whole lot. Sure was. And let's move on into our community spotlight where we discuss people's responses to last week's discussion question. The question was, what's your favorite example of a Wildbow character creatively problem solving on the fly? And we did say Wildbow character, so there's probably going to be some non worm answers but we'll see i did i didn't pull those because i couldn't but they were in there read them there were some in there yes okay uh, um once again we got answers that were Pretty much everyone had a different one, which is always a fun part about these questions is because these these books are so widespread and unique that uh, everyone can find something that that works for them in this. And I think that's cool. So the first one here is survival, who says my favorite problem solving moment was Golem figuring out Jack's weakness. The whole chapter was so intense. The use of red blue questions and the timer that came with them. The chapter was fantastic. Everything around it was pure gold. But Golem taking a moment and using Dinah's input to finally find a way around Jack's power was amazing. It was such a simple aspect of his power. So it makes sense that nobody picked up on it. It was amazing capstone to Golem's quest. Uh, I love that moment, too. I Golem is one of my favorite characters in the story. And uh, I, I, that was, that was their, their final moment and it was everything I wanted it to be. So I completely agree. I forgot about the red blue questions until, until now. Yeah, man, that was intense. Yeah. Sarah Penguin discusses Victoria's flight as her primary problem solving tool, noting that it's noting its uses both in and out of combat. I think we just pulled the combat ones, but uh, they, Sarah Penguin did, Note the non-combat ones. So she discusses observation. The first thing she does when a fight starts is she gets up high to see what the threat is, checks for guns, capes, and any hidden threats before starting the problem-solving of who to hit first and how to approach them. 
And then sneak, she uses her flight to avoid problems by sneaking past threats, using flight to avoid anyone hearing her footsteps, or using her flight in places, uh, sorry, to hide in places where people wouldn't see her or look. And yeah, then, nobody looks up in this story. Yeah, nobody looks up. <laughs> Everybody look up. Yeah, I know. She uses it so often. And then orientation and mobility. Uh, she makes use of not needing to stand to stand up, which helps as she runs rings around Colt, who has never flown before and takes time to learn how much she can move. In the same chapter, she uses her orientation to avoid hook lines. Hook line. Uh, it also shows her versatile orientation uh, to prove Ashtoria ship is canon. What? I get it. <laughs> I get it. Uh, up next, we have Kifru, who says, I have to go with the very beginning of Worm, where Taylor fell back on her pepper spray versus Lung. It sets the tone of the story that superpowers aren't this amazing panacea, unless you're, you are yeah, panacea, right. which people will just be slinging against each other. They're still humans, just with a dash of extra tools at their disposal. And sometimes that pan-dimensional reality-cutting scalpel isn't very good at solving what some capsaicin to the mucous membranes wraps up neatly. <laughs> Jesus, that's true, but, yeah. but Jesus. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of people have pointed out that moment with the pepper spray as being important to the story and, and just being like a moment of like, yep, she's in over her head. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think the, the story recognizes the importance of that moment as well because like the pepper spray kind of becomes like a symbol to her yeah. later in the book, so. It's true. Uh, Chortu uh, mentions Imp's handling of the heartbroken. And they say, that may sound like an irrelevant example, but I love how Imp uses her power to always come off the way she wants to while handling multiple extremely damaged and dangerous kid capes. Imp juggles the interpersonal issues of emotionally damaged psychopaths, and the most interesting part of this struggle is that she created this task for herself to pay homage to someone she lost. So while I love how Taylor suffocates a Superman proxy, or how Dragon is overcome by an Asimovian conundrum, Imp's thankless and endless struggle to keep 10 kids from killing each other and everyone else they meet wins out. I like That's that great. Answer. It doesn't get enough credit for that because that really is just completely out of the goodness of her heart. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that the Kachortu like took a different t uh, track with the question, right? They looked at it at a, a higher scope level than specific um, instances of outsparting or, or yeah. out puzzling. Yeah. Yeah. Up next, we have Roundest Frog, who says the first thing that comes to mind is Precipice using his doubt aura during the Lord of Lost fight to signal Victoria. On top of it being a great idea, it makes a lot of sense that he's thinking about how, how to use it right after it's brought to his attention. So yeah, that using that as a communication tool was really exactly that. It was a great problem-solving, uh, on-the-fly problem-solving moment for Rain um, that Victoria, I don't think, gave him enough credit for. It's true, it's true. Uh, Martian Maneater says, my favorite instance of problem solving on the fly was when Swansong ripped off her arm to impress the head honcho of the woman's prison. <laughs> um, and, but then, then they say, but no, really, the way she figured out how to break the, the Mather's compulsion was awesome. Yeah, I think uh, I think people like Ashley, Matt. I'm I not sure so. why. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> get it. No, I, I love Ashley. Uh, Calinero says the joint effort to defeat Scion was their favorite problem solving moment. Um, and they say it's interesting because I originally thought my favorite problem solving moment would be Taylor finding creative uses of her bugs or clever ways to direct others. However, I think the final psychological assault against Scion, which Taylor is an accessory in rather than the architect of, really takes the cake for me. 
My reasoning is that worm is a great example of a trope or structure if trope is too specific that I really enjoy people warding off an overwhelming existential threat, winning minor victories in the face of a larger onslaught only su- succeed by the skin of their teeth. The crux of this though, is that the problems to actually, the problems to actually be intimidating and the harder the problems, the harder it is for the author to come up with satisfying solutions. Too often the problem either ends up being too easily resolved or the solution feels unrealistic or last minute worm is not that. And that's very true. Um, I think one of the first things you told me about this book, um, even before I had started reading it, was how satisfying everything came together at the end was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is very true, that that the 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 final strategy, the final plan, the final problem solve to defeat Scion um, is thematically, is structurally, is um, perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, right. I think that was in my original review where I was just like, yeah. this is, I don't even need to say anything else about this, but I will, is, is that it, it has a satisfying ending. How often does that happen? Sticking the landing on endings is so, so, so important. Yeah. And so many authors struggle with it. Um, Stephen King is one of my favorite authors and he sucks at endings. He <laughs> really, really does. Yep. And I wish he didn't. But um, That's, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an underrated skill, yep. I think. Um. So next we have Wanson slash Feridian. I guess both people gave the same uh, answer. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they, they point out March um, <laughs> Monarch 16.11. And they say, when Coyle has Taylor teleported into an abandoned house, which he has cleared of insects, surrounded by his mercenaries and completely boarded up. And this is actually awesome, showing for both Coyle and Taylor, uh, especially when two chapters later, Coyle reveals how meticulously he prepared for this. Yeah, this was honestly the one that I expected everyone was going to pick um, because I think it's just from Taylor's perspective, getting out of the situation was so was like a watershed moment in her whole toolbox methodology. Um, yeah, but we had this is the only one that we doubled up on. So a couple people thought of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really great moment. Yeah. Hero of Old Iron says, my favorite bit of combat puzzling is Kraus versus Cody right after they get their powers. Cody does some thinking and initially has the upper hand by looping Kraus and taking advantage of his resetting memory. But as soon as Kraus gets an opening, he uses that against Cody in a way he didn't consider. It's a great characterization. Cody's the kind of person who does the same thing and charges ahead as soon as he has the first idea, trying but failing to use his power to back himself up. Kraus is a little more patient and willing to experiment. And it serves him. Not well but better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Um, and that's, I mean, fits in like that slots in so nicely to why Kraus was the better video game player at that game they played because he was just better at long-term strategic thinking and Cody was not. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I always think that trickster got a great, a great power for someone who is going to be clever with their power. Yes. It's, 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 it doesn't seem that strong unless you're going to be really clever with it. And then it's really strong. Uh, alternative arrival says I think my favorite is the mannequin fight Taylor is faced with an enemy her conventional methods of attack are useless against who's stronger than her faster than her and happy to use the crowd of civilians around them to her advantage death to his advantage she pulls trick after trick jamming his mechanisms with paint and glue binding him in silk bending his blades even fighting him head on eventually managing to eke out a victory (laughs) and eke is the right word there yeah (laughs) barely 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 Yeah. yeah Barely fighting him off. Yeah. Uh, all right. 
Next up is Data Snake 69. Nice. I'm going to focus on Lisa's discovery of the Scrub Labyrinth interaction. In one foul swoop, she managed to convince the travelers to help in the fight against Noel, revitalize Brockton Bay's economy, find a place for humanity to go when the world ended, and, most importantly, prove that she was the smartest person in the room. <laughs> yeah, and it worked out well for everybody. Yep. No caveats. <laughs> um skints says the way taylor volunteered clock blocker to help her against echidna was amazing not, not only is it great on the fly thinking but when i think of which moments would be mo the most visually impressive in worm and ward this one is definitely one of the best i can clearly imagine how echidna rushes into the strand of spider silk starts to split into tries to stop herself but can't because of her mom because of her momentum really good stuff the small discussion Taylor and Dennis have right after is pretty hilarious, too, with her having assumed it would work without knowing all the details about his power and him just assuming she knew it would work because he thinks Tattletail told her it would. Yeah, I, I still love that scene, too. The the holy shit moment when uh, Kidna splits in two was like just amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Great job, Taylor, except for the part when the people were in her. Yeah, that wasn't great. Yeah, they died. They died in there. Yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, like other good discussions that were happening in the Reddit today, there was one that I uh, a theory that I really liked or, or a, maybe it wasn't a, uh, like a single theory, but I think it was a, a, a direction and that the post was titled Ward's Religious Themes and a Prediction for the End of the Serial. And I guess like the number one thing that I liked about it, I'm not going to talk about it for more than a second, but the number one thing I liked was pointing out um, uh, the the first um, lines of the story are about connectivity being down and people trying to restart that connectivity, restart the network. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, that's amazing. And and bear with us as we struggle to, to, uh, to reestablish communication. And it's like, Holy shit. Yeah, I think uh, I remember this one, too. Um, I think this is the one that said that their prediction for that um, Victoria was going to end up being the, the new entity and, and be yeah. the hub. Um, that's interesting. I kind of see that as like a, a failure. My initial reaction was that's a failure mode for Victoria, right? If that's where she ends up by the end of the story. Um, so my initial reaction was like, I don't want that to happen, but may maybe not. I mean, maybe you can see a way around it. I mean, the thing that I liked most about this is we had been like circling around the religious themes um, throughout the story, but we never really knew where to put them. And I think this, this theory attempts to, to try to like understand why they matter in, in context of the story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I was thinking my twist on it. Um, I, I liked a lot of the discussion in this thread overall, but I was thinking like a lot of people were saying she was going to replace the warrior hub and I was thinking like, well, I think she's a thinker. I, I think she, if she's going to replace anything, it's going to be, it's going to be eaten. But, yeah. but maybe I'm, maybe that's all a little bit too literal and, and, and detail oriented in a way that's not productive. But anyway, I, I thought it was a great discussion. It's, it's yeah. already, I'm, I'm glancing over it now. It's already a really long thread. Obviously people are, are getting a lot out of it. Yeah. Um, so I liked uh, it. I, yeah. I, I need to think about it and think about how I could wrangle it into what I think the current themes are and, um, how that could not be seen as a failure mode, <laughs> like her becoming an entity. Yeah, well, like, it, it, it's bittersweet, right? And 
I suppose I I would mostly bitter. Well, yeah. I mean, was worm was worms ending bittersweet? Was it mostly bitter? I would say so. I, suppose. I, I, I don't know. I mean, are we are we gonna get a bittersweet ending or a sweet bitter ending? We'll see. I, I Won't suppose. we? <laughs> we will see. That's for sure. Inevitably, we will be here until that happens. Yep. Uh, so the discussion question for this week is consider what these shard POVs are saying about different ways trauma can manifest and different ways people can respond to their trauma. Yeah. So explore, I think we have two examples of different, different, uh, shard host relationships and how those relationships can say something about the trauma that the people are experiencing and what they're, what they're doing to live with it. Um, yeah. So have fun with that. That's have a fun. tough one. Yeah. So I think now we're going to go, we're going to talk about March, sorry, March's Madness. It's Uh, time for March's Madness. That's right. Um, www.doofmedia.com slash March Madness. Go vote. Go vote if you haven't yet. Go do it now. So first we're going to talk about our five easiest picks. Yeah, I think going forward in the tournament, um, we will probably like break down each individual matchup and talk about them a bit. Yeah. But because there are 32 of them. Um, in this first round, when I, when I'm going to do that, yeah. um, that's a lot, that's a lot of that's them. Too many. So instead we've decided to pick our five easiest to decide and our five most difficult to decide in this first round and just go through those. Yeah. I'm not going to be super detail oriented about mine, but yeah, I'm, I'm not either. <laughs> um, my, so he will, I will go back and forth on easiest and then we'll go back and forth on hardest. Okay. Um, my first easiest was, uh, Aleph. Number one matchup, that was the first seed Skitter versus the 16th seed Danny. Sorry, Danny. Taylor wins. Sorry. Sorry. That was easy. I didn't even need to think about it. What was yours? Uh, my, uh, I, I put Rachel, uh, Rachel versus Cherish. I picked Rachel. And I think, you know, one interesting thing about this is, like, it, it's intentionally completely undefined what this means. But there was yep. no way I was going to vote for Cherish over Rachel. <laughs> Yeah, um, that is my next one. So I also picked Rachel over Cherish. Easy, 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 easy. Yeah, I, I love Rachel. If 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 I was designing, if I was seeding this tournament um, based on my choices, uh, Rachel would have been a number one seed. Yeah, but I, I I knew I had to do other people as well. Yeah, my next one was uh, Weld versus Tecton. I, I picked Weld. I mean, he's uh, he's kind of let us down recently, honestly. But <laughs> but even that just makes him more of a complex and and nuanced character. Whereas Tecton, we just didn't know well enough for, for me to I say loved, that he, I loved Tecton though. I, I love Tecton, but you know, I don't know, man, you're, you're making me doubt my choice now because well, <laughs> man, I'm really, I forgot how mad I was at well. You're right. You're right. I need to go well, change my vote. But here's the thing. This is supposed to be worm only. So oh, okay. it's supposed to be worm only. Well, okay. So. True. True. Yeah. Uh, my third one was dragon versus saint. Uh, hashtag saint was wrong. Easy. Yep. By by Saint. So so here's where we're going to get some comments, Scott. My next one was Accord versus Labyrinth. Come on, guys. Accord is such a more interesting character than Labyrinth. This was an easy decision for you? Oh, absolutely. I didn't have to think about it. Labyrinth, I mean, I'm sorry, but like she's spaced out all the time. Like she's basically just like a really cool power. And then she and then she she's in another dimension with her mind most of the time. I guess I guess you're just going to easily kill a harmless little girl who never did anything to nobody i mean that's fine i mean accord wouldn't feel bad about it so why should i like that's does that terrible make sense lo- no, that's a terrible logic doesn't make any sense makes as much sense as prancer's uh uh anyway <laughs> <laughs> uh my number four 
is Golem versus Genesis. Um, we just talked during the discussion question part that Golem is one of my favorite characters in the entire story. So as much as I enjoy Genesis as a character, uh, this was easy for me. I will always pick Golem just about. So easy decision. Done. Mm-hmm. Yep. Next easy for me, Imp versus Pigo. I mean, Imp is like, one. I don't know if she's my favorite character, but come on. But Imp. that Pigo, though. She's Pagata. But Imp, though. See, that's, that's the thing. Some of them are easy because some of them are easy because there's just a huge disparity. Some of them are easy just because it doesn't matter what this disparity is if one of them is your favorite character. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, and my final one was Chevalier versus Faultline. Um, and of course, I picked my boy Chevy because he's also one of my favorite characters and I love him. And, and again, this is not anything bad to say about Faultline. I appreciate Faultline as a character, but in this matchup, uh, the choice was obvious. Yes. My last one in the easiest bracket, the easiest list was Trickster versus Leviathan. Everyone knows that I think Krauss is a f- absolutely fascinating character. Um, mm-hmm. it's that easy, easy pick for that's Trickster. interesting. That's interesting because we're going to jump right into my hardest five. Okay. And uh, one of mine was Trickster versus Leviathan. Oh, yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, because I like Trickster a lot. I think you like him more than I do. But uh, I also really like Leviathan. I uh-huh. think Leviathan, like, I have a special place in my heart for Godzilla monsters. And uh, Leviathan was the first one we got in the story. But I did end up picking Trickster. Um, it was difficult for me. But I, I did pick Trister, Trickster. Okay, well, I'm glad that we can continue to be friends. Um <laughs> My one of my hardest ones was clock blocker versus brandish. That's ridiculous. And, that and is ridiculous. I see that the funny thing is I'm not sure which direction you mean that in because I, I think they're both great. So just to, to be fully above board, I'm I'm the way I think about this is like which of them are just like more intricate, complex and and fascinating to think about characters. And for me, these are both intricate, complex and fascinating to think about characters. And you, you wrote down who you picked. I don't even remember who I picked. <laughs> so, so like I wrote down my list of ones where I'm like, I don't remember who I picked here. Um, cause I don't remember who I picked. Well, um, you're wrong. I think I might've picked brandish. No, I mean, here, here's the thing. Um, I, I agree with you. They're both really interesting characters. However, one of them is named clock blocker. <laughs> Done. Okay, yeah. No, I, I get it. Yeah. Um, my next hardest one was Miss Militia versus Gru. And um, this one was hard, not because I didn't know who I was going to pick. Always, 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 always. Um, but because not picking Gru was very difficult. I picked Miss Melissa, Militia in this matchup, and I am sad that I just voted for Gru to die again. Um, I think... I think all of the undersiders are going to get out of the first round. I think Gru might not. Uh, no. <laughs> that kind of makes me sad. Poor but Gru. Uh, I picked Miss Militia. It was it was faded. <laughs> I mean, Regent really should die first, though. Well, anyway, Regent's way too interesting of a character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry, 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 Ryan. Um, oh yeah, and that's my next one on the list too: Miss Militia versus Gru. I'm and again, I don't remember who I something. picked. You better have picked Miss Mullen. Well, I, nah, I don't care. I, if you picked Gru, I'll be happy. There's actually no way of me even finding that out, is there? This uh, is so funny that I, I... No, there's not. I'll never know. I'll never know <laughs> who I picked. Um, next up, I picked Kid Wind versus Lung as one of my most difficult ones to pick. Um, 
I just feel like I have a very complex relationship with Kid Wynn, and I feel bad now anytime I like do anything against him. <laughs> so I looked at this and my instinct said, oh, Lung. Then I was like, oh, but Kid Wynn. And I ended up picking Kid Wynn. I sat on this one for a few yeah. minutes and I ended up picking my boy Kid Wynn. I don't think he's going to win, but I picked him. Yeah, that was my next one, too, actually. Kid Wynn versus Lung. Lung. Oh. And, See, and I, think I, picked, I think I picked Kid Wynn, too. But it, uh, that's a great one because they're both... They're both like background characters who have their own little arcs, their own their own stuff going on, um, and and it basically came down to uh, I like Kidwin and I feel feel bad that he died and yeah. uh, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, my next one was Coil versus Sveta, um, and remember this is supposed to be only Worm Sveta, so it would be unfair of me to vote based on my love of the character in Ward. Which is why this was so difficult mm -hmm. because I divorcing her from what I know about her, of her character in Ward was tough because I, I think Coyle is such a fascinating character as well. I love Coyle. Um, he's a scumbag, but in the best possible way. And uh, I think I, I ended up going Sveta on this. I think I probably did it be, even though I tried to separate myself from her um, in in the next story. I, I, it's just not possible. So I think I think that that pushed her over the hump for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my next one was Foil versus Marquis, and uh, again, interesting. Again, two fascinating characters um, that that bear a lot of thinking about. I don't even remember who I went with again. I don't remember who I picked in that either. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just trying to think. Um, yeah, I think I picked Foil. I think. Yeah, I, I, I mean they're know. they're just so different. That like that, that's yeah. another one of the one that, another one of the things that makes it hard to pick is when they're so different that you're just like your mind returns like a number not available error. You're just like, uh, <laughs> gotcha. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, and my final one is Legend versus Blasto. I had a lot of trouble with this one. I love Legend. I I've always liked Legend as a character. Like I think. I, I had to convince myself while I was reading that he was going to die and I was so happy that he didn't at the end. But I also like have this love and sympathy for Blasto as this person who like did not deserve any of the horrible, horrible things that happened to him. Yeah. Um, and that so that it, it, it made me feel guilty for like damning him again. Um, and uh, but I, I decided in the end to go with Legend. Um, I just. I like him. I like his power set. He's I imagine him as a I don't know how good of a father he is, but I in my head, he's a great father. Um, yeah. So I, I went with legend. Yeah. And my final one was Perian versus Dr. Mother. Um, Do you remember what you did in this one? Because I'm, I'm really curious. No, I don't. This <laughs> I, I literally don't remember any of these except for the kid win one because I was just like, oh, no, I can't vote for Lunga. Um, but uh, I, th that one. Again, I was just like, well, Perrin's Perrin's great. Dr. Mother's terrible, but she's terrible in a way that really sticks with you. Like, I, yeah. I definitely think about Dr. Mother more than I think about Perrin. So, yeah, I think I voted for Dr. Mother in this this case. I, I, I like I like Perrin as a person, um, as a character. I just I just feel like um, I just haven't gotten a lot of time with her. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hope you enjoyed that and I hope you got your votes in um, and, you know, stay tuned and, and check again next week for the next round. Yeah, it's going to it's going to open right after the this round closes. So 
Monday morning, uh, the round the round two vote should be up. That'll be 16 more matches. Um, they're going to get harder. <laughs> they're going to get a lot harder, guys. Um, and we will cover the results of the first round and we will cover some of our picks for some of the matches in the second round as well on next week's episode. So I hope you guys are enjoying this. I'm having a great time with it. Um, it's been successful as far as the number of you guys voting. We're, we're kind of shocked at, at how many votes these things have. And I'm, I'm very happy with it. So if you haven't voted yet, do it doofmedia.com slash March Madness. Go, 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 go. Vote. Uh, enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. All right. That's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at how the hell did you pick Brandish? More than mail. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. Another reminder, go check out Deep Impact, um, those guys doing the deep dive into Wild Bill's other web serial. Uh, if you haven't read Pact yet, this is a great excuse to read it. If you've read it, just go listen to them. They're doing a great job. Um, go go do that. Go. Yeah. And if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and costume contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our ex- excellent Discord chat. And of course, by supporting us, you enable features like march march's madness yeah special thanks to new uh bidoof's dadanista uh david and tikal c all at the one dollar dollar level and andrew t at the three dollar level we really appreciate that all of y'all um it means a lot to us yes thank you guys and as always make sure you head over to wildbo's patreon patreon.com slash wildbo and donate to him as well this is his world we're just playing in it and if you can't afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by uh, sharing this podcast with anyone you know. We don't really market. Um, we've talked about doing marketing, but right now we're just relying on your word of mouth. So so please share. I mean, you're sharing Worm with people already, so share us too. And uh, also you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This week's Spotlight Review comes from Calm Breaths, who gives us five stars and says... Excellent on all fronts. We've got Ward and we've got Worm are both engaging and entertaining companion podcasts to the Parahuman stories. The two hosts, Matt and Scott, have excellent chemistry with one another, maintaining a fun yet grounded discussion over the course of one and a half to three hour long episodes. Wait, our episodes were one and a half out. When was that? Uh, each episode comprises for the most part of Matt's succinct and engaging summaries of parts of the story and Scott's high energy and engaging literary analysis with healthy dose of audience interaction. I come away from each episode with a better understanding of the stories I love so much and cannot recommend this podcast enough to anyone who has or is currently reading one of the parahuman stories. Calm breaths. Thank you so much for those kind words. We really, really do appreciate that. I'm glad you're enjoying both shows. Um, I wish the episodes were one and a half hours. They're just not anymore. Just it's never going to happen again. Uh, but we appreciate it. Um, and and to all of you that take the time to rate and review us on on iTunes, uh, thank you so much. It 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 really does help, um, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really amazed at how kind and and 
how well thought out and like thoughtful these reviews are. Like they're not yeah. just like good podcasts that they're, they're always yeah. like, wow, they really, they really thought about this. That really and, means a lot to me. It makes me feel real bad for the podcast <laughs> the reviews I leave on other ones. Cause that's what mine are. It's like, <laughs> this is good. Five stars. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be back with more of arc 12 heavens. Is it going to be another Shardalude? I Shardalude? don't know. I, I'm past guessing at this point. <laughs> guessing is for people that know what's going on. Yeah. We clearly don't.